This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt once again, who is still a sickie. We wish him well. We wish him a speedy recovery. I especially do. <laughs> anyway, we will soldier on and still have a good show anyway. You're not the only one. <laughs> oh, I see. Because you're running the board and you'd, you'd prefer me to be behind the board and you catching some more Z's probably. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> well, we've appreciated you here, Sean. And we've had some fun, right? It's been a good week. Yeah, it's been fun. And what better way to top off the end of the week than by celebrating National Pastry Day? Ooh, pastries. Uh, Did you know that pastries have been around since 2600 B.C.? Okay. Yeah. The Egyptians made donut-like pastries out of crude flour and honey and then dipped them in wine. I thought maybe cheese Danish. Oh, In the 7th century, pastry making developed as a culinary art form in the Middle East. It spread to Europe after the Crusades, and French and Italian chefs developed their own version of the recipes and experimented with new techniques. National Pastry Day. Toaster pastry, it tastes good and yummy. Toaster pastry, get into my tummy. Frosting doodle on my strudel. Now I'm going to eat you up. That's the song that goes through my head every time I eat a pastry. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I don't typically eat toaster strudels. My tastes are a little more sophisticated than that. I uh, I tend to levitate toward the cronut, which is a hybrid of... Is that a pastry? or Are donuts pastries? It's it's a hybrid of a donut and a croissant. Yes. And but I is that a pastry? To, before I met my wife, I would say croissant. But croissant? But she, she has... Informed me of the error of my ways. It's croissant. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but she criticizes me also whenever I say carne asada. She says, just say carne asada. <laughs> anyway, I'm not uh, – uh, just a little jab. I love my wife. I really do. Don't hang out with but, me then because I, I, throw, I throw my Italian accent around all the time. Oh, I thought you were going to say you throw your wife under the bus. No. Well, okay. that, there's that too. Oh, okay. Well, you and I are just are lucky to have him. Oh, that's true. And I'm sure Terry could say that too of his wife. Anyway. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> she's great. Tribute. Got to respond. She listens. She'll get mad. Tribute That's to right. Mrs. South from like, Terry South. You didn't South. say anything. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's also Lost and Found Day. The concept of having a place where people can come to possibly recover things they have lost dates back to 1805, where Napoleon Bonaparte, or Bonaparte, how would you say that in French, opened the first Lost and Found office in Paris. Objects found on the streets of the city could be brought there, and those looking for them could go there to see if their items had been brought in. Since then, the concept has spread all over the world. Hmm. How often does somebody's iPhone show up in a lost and found box? My daughter's did. Are you serious? I am dead serious. Wow. We were on a cruise last year, 
Uh, her, she dropped her. I don't know where she dropped her phone, but we went to the lost and found, and her phone was there. Oh, I love it. But you're on a ship. It's not like it, it wasn't very usable when you're out at sea, right? So, but you know, that's that's just proof that people are still good at heart, and yep. when put in the right, you know, if when put under the the magnifying glass like that, they'll do the right thing. Fantastic. Most, I think most of the time that happens. Oh, not every it. time, but most of the time. Well, we'll be talking more about those those fun uh, day-themed topics later on in the program. We're also going to be talking movies later on in the show, fake news, and I don't want to say celebrate, but we're going to be uh, observing Sadie Nielsen's last day here on the Matt Townsend Show. And speaking of Sadie, why don't we head over to Sadie right now? Sadie Nielsen, who has the headlines of what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? President-elect Donald Trump will remain the executive producer credit on NBC's Celebrity Apprentice, even while in the White House, Variety reported Thursday afternoon. The popular reality TV series returns in a new year for its 15th season, featuring the new host Arnold Schwarzenegger. Trump's continued financial stake in the television show adds to the growing list of conflict of interest concerns about his incoming presidency. His involvement in the show also came under scrutiny this year after former staffers and participants on the show spoke to various outlets alleging inappropriate behavior by Trump during the show's tapings. Dylan Roof's attorney alleged in court documents on Thursday that the shooter's mother suffered from a heart attack after prosecutors described his process of killing nine black church members. She reportedly collapsed and said, I'm sorry, on Wednesday as Roof's death penalty trial began. Roof's attorney is trying to argue for a mistrial based on the episode and the mother's condition is currently unknown. The U.S. District Judge over the trial denied the mistrial request. John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth and the fifth person in space, passed away Thursday at the age of 95. The famed astronaut has been hospitalized for several weeks and was reported in declining health over the past several days. In addition to being one of America's first astronauts as part of the Mercury 7 group of test pilots, Glenn was also a long-serving U.S. senator, representing Ohio from 1974 until 1999. While serving in the Senate, Glenn became the oldest person to fly in space on October 29, 1999, when he flew on a Discovery mission. And finally, um, Jeff, what's something that you just absolutely go bonkers over? Muddy buddies. Muddy buddies? Oh, yeah. Like you just like can't handle it. Oh, bonkers like I can't get enough of them or yeah, bonkers like you, yeah. you can't get enough of them oh, my or, goodness. or like animal wise. Is there any animal that you just like die over? Um, no, really. but you know, huskies are, are super cute. I agree with that. I agree. So there is a man who had a meltdown when he met his first alpacas in Peru. And it's going viral thanks to some photos shared by his daughter. Santa Monica resident Alexandria Neonakis posted a series of text message screenshots to Twitter showing her conversation with her father, Demetrius, as he sent her photos of himself with alpacas during his trip to Peru. This is what he said. This was the absolute softest and most huggable animal ever. It is an alpaca. I couldn't stop hugging it and kissing it and putting my face on its thick, soft wool. Uh, it's what he said. It's wool was so soft and on my face, it kept me laughing. It was the softest ever. And she said, my dad is in Peru having a meltdown over alpacas. I'm He's at the I'm bringing one home stage right now. <laughs> hmm. 
You know, I could maybe see that. I, you know, when I first uh, put on an alpaca, El alpaca, <laughs> yes, alpaca sweater. You know, wow, that was heaven right there. Two words: double rainbow. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I don't know how you would chip one of those home, but uh, if you did, I would be very impressed. Very careful. Yeah, mm. I guess so. Just get a sweater. And with lots of permits. Yes. Yep. Uh-huh. Wow. What about you, Sadie? What do you go bonkers over? Um, I don't know if I go that bonkers over anything. I actually really like iguanas. Have you ever mm. held an iguana before? They're so cuddly and they make great sweaters. No, they're not. They're not cuddly. Oh, not I at see. all. Okay. <laughs> they make shoes. But they... I held one that like was like bright blue and green and it was like the weirdest thing ever and it would just sit on my arm and like stare at me and it freaked me out but I really liked it at the same time. <laughs> wow. You were scared but you fell in love at the same time. Yes. Hopefully that's not uh that doesn't also describe your husband. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Sadie. We'll check back with you in the next hour. Thank you as always. Wow. You know, I mentioned earlier that we're going to be uh, talking about fake news here with our first guest. And, uh, you know, there's somebody that uh, doesn't think fake news is such a bad idea. Yes, Hillary Clinton spoke today. Play clip one. It's now clear that so-called fake news can have real-world consequences. This isn't about politics or partisanship. Lives are at risk. Lives of ordinary people just trying to go about their days to do their jobs, contribute to their communities. It's a danger that must be addressed and addressed quickly. Bipartisan legislation is making its way through Congress to boost the government's response to foreign propaganda. And Silicon Valley is starting to grapple with the challenge and threat of fake news. It's imperative that leaders in both the private sector and the public sector step up to protect our democracy and innocent lives. Was she speaking in Silicon Valley? No, it was Harry Reid's sort of farewell thing yesterday they had at the uh, the Capitol building. And then why did she, I don't know, okay. Watch the hour whatever presentation they did. This is a clip she's just talking about fake news and what, I mean, we had a guy over the weekend walk into a pizza parlor with an AR-15, so she has some Hmm. validity with her comments. And we're going to talk to a guy later on about what it is and if it can be fought, because I don't know if it can. But should she yeah, be the question. one talking about the dangers of fake news? Because wouldn't it seem almost like maybe she's a little bitter because there are some people out there that think that maybe fake news swayed the election a little bit. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> it's, it's a topic that's out there. I'm not sure if she took questions or if this was part of her prepared comments, but she was talking about one of the problems facing us right now is can we trust the news that is presented to us Hmm. in any form from anyone because that's the problem is the fake news starts to erode the confidence we have in actual news because then you start questioning whether that that even is real or is presented well maybe maybe donald trump didn't win the presidency and she's not even she didn't even talk about that she didn't even mention that she's just talking about there's this there's there's news out there. She was accused of, mur- uh, of being involved in a murder of an FBI agent. Wow. You know? And mm. it's just stuff like that doesn't need to be put out there. There's plenty of information to go after politicians that is 
you know, maybe they're doing something wrong. Maybe they're doing something right. But then people are just making things up. I wonder you know? if this is coming from pathological liars or if there's revenue to be had. NPR interviewed one of the guys that does this. He runs about – I think they listed about 15 sites that he posts to. And he does it, as he said, as a protest towards um, like what, what he would refer to. I guess he referred to it as more traditional accurate news. And he doesn't feel it's too accurate, so he makes up fake news to kind of show that they can just, you, you know, you can be manipulated. Except nobody reads the disclaimer on his website. They just read the articles he posts. Sure. And then he gets the hits on Facebook and Google, which then sends him money because there's ads and he's making money as but he it's, does it. But it's just a protest. He voted for Hillary. And most, almost, they said probably about 60% of what he posted was against her specifically. Wow. And they asked him why, and he goes... I don't know. It's kind of fun to mess things up and cause chaos. So it's it's really an odd situation. And there needs something probably needs to be done. I don't know what you can do, but that's kind of where we're at at the moment. So she talked about it for a moment yesterday. Also on Thursday, the House approved a bill of fi- uh, to finance the federal government until April 28th by a 329 to 96 vote. So lots of people on it. But the Senate Democrats may force a brief government shutdown over a provision to fund health care for retired coal miners. The current bill includes a four-month extension of the miners' health benefits set to lapse on January 1st for at least 12,000 union miners and their families. But a senator from West Virginia says he will do everything I can to stop the spending bill if it doesn't have a one-year extension so lawmakers can work out a permanent fix for the miners' badly underfunded pension fund. So we might have a budget to fund the government, or we might not. Hmm. Stay tuned. Okay. Kind of need to get that done. It expires tonight. Mm. Yes. So, yay. Uh, <laughs> Trump continues his victory tour or thank you tour. I'm, I'm hearing or, thank you tour now, yeah. At first they called it a victory tour. Then they went, wait a second. They backed off, called it a thank you tour. Clip two. <laughs> he talks about the first executive order he wants to pass. We'll be to ask the Department of Labor to investigate all visa abuses that undermine jobs and wages for the American worker. To protect our country from terrorism and extremism, we will suspend immigration from regions where it cannot be safely processed or vetted. You know, I've used the expression extreme vetting. Extreme. Oh, it's going to be extreme. He got hung up there for a second. (laughs) We want people coming into our country. We want them coming in legally. But we want them coming in legally. But we want them coming in. So protect jobs, immigration. He goes off on the wall, talks about the great doors that will be in the wall. Hmm. He's always very energetic about the doors. He goes on and talks about uh, there's criticism about all the wealthy people that are in his cabinet. Clip three. And one newspaper criticized me. Why can't they have people of modest means? Because I want people that made a fortune. Because now they're negotiating with you, okay? It's no different than a great baseball player or a great golfer. I mean, we want the people that are going to bring... And they're so proud to do it. These people have given up fortunes of income in order to make a dollar a year. And they're so proud to do it. And you watch. You watch what's going to happen. It's going to happen fast, too. So Trump's pick for Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, worth $2.5 billion. Betsy DeVos, who Trump tapped for education secretary, comes from a family worth $5.1 billion. And Trump's pick for the Small Business Administration, Linda McMahon, and her husband have an estimated net worth of $1.6 billion. 
Wow. And supposedly so, she gave him $7 million. Yes, yeah, she's a big donor. All these people were donors mm-hmm. to his campaign in one form or another. <clears throat> See, that first one sounded like Donald Trump on prompter. Second yeah. one seemed like Donald Prompt or Donald Trump well, off prompter. Yeah, he goes in with a message and then he has his normal campaign stop. It's kind yeah. of fun that way. Uh, in a, the interview for the Time Magazine article where he was named Man of the Year or – what the divider, the president of the divided states of America says yes. on the cover. Yeah. Um, he is quoted as saying he could get on any, he could get on a phone call with any company in, that, in the United States planning on leaving for five minutes and get them to stay. Wow. Mm. He doesn't explain how, but he just sort of drops that, and it's I don't know. Speaking Maybe of reality TV, that sounds like it'd be a great game show. Could be. So are we going to have a new show called The Executive? Could you get them to stay in five minutes? (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of jobs, uh, we talked yesterday about the uh, Steelworkers, United Steelworkers local union rep that Trump went after on Twitter. Yes. Criticized the carrier deal and all that. Apparently, um, so it was, you know, Trump said 1,100 jobs. It's closer to 800, maybe Mm -hmm. 700. However, the number ends up that way. The CEO of Carrier's parent company, United Technology, said the reason – they went along with the deal is that the other part of the – they went along with this deal says we are going to make a $16 million investment in that factory in Indianapolis to automate and drive the cost down so we can continue to be competitive. If they're okay. going to automate a factory, usually that means they start Lose cutting jobs. jobs. Right. <laughs> so they save jobs and they're going to automate the factory and probably end up losing jobs after all. Mm-hmm. And he just went on TV yesterday on CNBC and went, yeah, I, we well, did this. Well, you still do need people to fix the automated machines when they break down. That's right. But not, not, as, not, many, as, many. not as many as who make – yeah, exactly. So yep. It, it just seems like there's just all these moving pieces of this deal and we're not exactly sure what's happening. Who knows? It's great. Well, he's got a lot of work ahead of him, President-elect Donald Trump. I'm, I'm interested to hear more about those doors that he's so proud of on the wall. I just, I just hope that Jim it's some, Morrison's one of them. I think. Yeah, I just hope that it's something like the Wizard of Oz. You know, where they've got those those doorkeepers that come out and say, "Who rang that bell?" You do that very well. Well, thank you. I love that movie. Anyway, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, speaking of fake news, we'll be speaking with a professor, uh, Professor Kelly Garrett, who's going to be shedding some more light on that very subject. When we come back, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. About a month ago, ABC was caught staging a fake crime scene. And more recently, the story of Pizzagate has flooded the Internet. Fake news is making news as people are clickbaited into a catchy headline. Here to talk with us today is Kelly, uh, R. Kelly Garrett, a communication professor at Ohio State University, to discuss how news articles have so many fooled. Uh, Professor Kelly or Professor Kelly Garrett, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
You know, uh, I just teased there that there are so many people that are baited by catchy headlines. And although I feel like I I don't get I don't fall for these fake news stories that often, I will admit every once in a while there's something that comes up on Yahoo that says we lost them too soon. And then it's got a picture of a famous celebrity. And I've clicked on it a couple of times and then you go and it has something to do with has nothing to do with that celebrity passing away. (sighs) Do you fall for that at all? Of course, I think everyone is occasionally tricked by by a catchy headline. Um, the fact is that we lead very busy lives. We have to make quick decisions about what we're going to spend our time on because there's a lot competing for our attention. And so the, the shortcuts that we use sometimes lead us astray. We think, oh, that sounds interesting. Wouldn't it be terrible or wonderful if that were true? And so let me learn a little more about it or... Maybe sometimes we don't even bother saying, learn about it. Let me just tell other people because, gosh, it's really important. Yeah. Sounds like it might be. So as I was reading your articles and thinking more about fake news, you know, it occurred to me that fake news isn't really all that new. You know, you go back as far as Orson Welles and doing the uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast, which, uh, by the way, did have a disclaimer at the beginning, but unfortunately a lot of people missed out on that disclaimer. Um, you know, and then flashing forward to World War II propaganda, you know, weekend update on Saturday Night Live, The Daily Show, The Onion. What? How is how is today's fake news different from the fake news that we've that we've become accustomed to over the years? Okay, so let me let me um, back up just a second. I think you've raised a really interesting and important point about what exactly we mean when we talk about fake news. I think the simplest definition is just to say that these are stories that hinge, at least in part, on events that didn't happen and that are based on evidence that does not exist. But even that definition leaves room for lots of different kinds of content. There's political satire, you know, the the stuff that's trying to make a political point, and that's often not accurate. The Onion has long produced content that is it's fake. It's not based on reality, but it's also not intended to deceive, but rather to give people a chance to laugh or poke fun at uh, people they disagree with. There's propaganda. These are the, the kinds of messages that are meant to convince supporters uh, that, or, or convince people to support an issue or a candidate by telling them things that, that sound good. You know, this policy will will make your life better. This candidate is going to be bad for the country. If you can convince people of those kinds of claims with inaccurate news stories, you can maybe move people's votes. And then the third kind that I would want to call attention to are, are efforts to engage in disinformation. You know, This is when the goal is not so much to persuade people of a particular claim, but rather to, to create confusion and distrust. Uh, to, to make people feel that the, what we talk about when we're talking about the news, you can't believe any of it because it's all, everyone is contradicting everyone else. Mm, thank you for, for kind of splitting those up into the different categories, too. Um, where, do you, where do you think people are getting most of their news from? Well, we, we have pretty good evidence that people are getting news from online these days more than ever before. And when they go online, their news, uh, about a quarter of Americans say that that Facebook is their top source of news. Other sources that are highly 
used included the major national news organizations' websites, CNN, Fox, some of the news aggregation sources like Yahoo. Of course, people also still rely on print and television and newspaper, but but to a much lesser extent than they used to. Hmm. I know that uh, there was a time when a lot of people were getting a lot of their news from shows like The Daily Show, um, which, you know, as you mentioned, is one of those categories that you were talking about, satire. Uh, in your article, you talked a little bit about filter bubbles. Can you tell us more about what filter bubbles are? Sure. The idea of a filter bubble is that these technologies that we rely on for our news are attempting to personalize the content that's provided to us. So the, the recommendations that show up in our news feed on Facebook, for example, those recommendations are tailored based on the kinds of content that we've engaged with in the past, based on the people that we follow or are friends with. And the concern, when we talk about filter bubbles, is that the, the things that are recommended to us end up being uh, exclusively the kinds of things that we would be predisposed to believe. So if you are a, a Trump supporter, the idea of a filter bubble is that you would only ever see news that says Trump is doing great and you wouldn't ever encounter any critiques of him. Similarly, during the election, if you were a Clinton supporter, you'd see just the opposite. But one of the points that I've been trying to make is that filter bubbles are not the not as not as we often think of them. This this kind of perfect insulation that people are never having contact with ideas that they disagree with. There's a lot of evidence that that's wrong. People do encounter things that they disagree with. The more problematic issues that we're facing today in this, um, the way people get news is that we disregard or discount or distrust anything that is critical of the things we believe in and the candidates that we like. That's so interesting. You know, you mentioned uh, people only being able to see uh coverage that is in line with with their beliefs. It seems like after the election, whenever you turned on the TV and watched a late night show, anything that was produced by somebody in Hollywood uh, uh, or in a, you know, a production company, it seems like it seemed like such a somber event. And you would it made me think that there's nobody out there that that is happy that Donald Trump is going to be the next president. So that's so interesting. I think that there is a, a pretty wide range of views, and I think that, uh, well, it's clear, for example, that um, the president-elect has been paying attention to the late-night programming, which is clearly critical of him. Um, and so, again, the point that, I'm, uh, that I'd try to drive home is that while there may be outlets that favor one side or another, people do tend to encounter a range of different kinds of views when they're consuming news, uh, at least online. So these articles that are showing up on Facebook, you know, we're, we're learning that Facebook is kind of a big offender here with the fake news. Are these, are any of these articles shaping people's political beliefs? What kind of an impact are they having on people? So, so first of all, I, I would back up and say, while Facebook has been in the news, I wouldn't place, um, I would be careful about saying, well, it's really only about Facebook. The kinds of content that we're talking about are being shared on Facebook, but before there was Facebook, or before Facebook was as popular a conduit for political news as it is today, 
these same kinds of stories were being shared over email, and they continue to be shared over email today. And before there was any of this online stuff, as you alluded to earlier in the conversation, fake news, stories that aren't true, propaganda, whispering campaigns, these have been a part of the American political scene for a very long time. So um, the role that Facebook plays, it, it's clear that there's a very high level of engagement with this kind of uh, content, the content that there's a lot of engagement around satire and disinformation. And we don't yet know what role that has had on the 2016 election. In 2008, when I was looking at these questions, I saw that email, the use of political email, was the strongest predictor of people having inaccurate beliefs about uh, the candidates in that election. And it was a stronger predictor than people's use of highly partisan political news outlets, suggesting that there was something unique, something special about the kinds of communication happening between people who know one another. In 2012, I began looking at the role of social media and find no evidence. This work is still ongoing, but we've been looking in a variety of ways, and we can find no evidence that people's use of social media was contributing to misperceptions about the candidates. Email continued to be a powerful factor shaping people's attitudes, but not social media. At 2016, maybe different. We, we certainly have seen a lot more news coverage around the fake news uh, industry, the, the combination of satire, propaganda, disinformation that has received so much attention in Facebook and so much engagement. And so it will be very interesting to see whether that, in fact, shaped what people believe and whether it ultimately influenced which candidates they supported in the election. But that's an open question. You know, that that is a good question, too, because I, I'm curious to know what type of an influence this is going to have on future elections. Well, I, I agree that it was uh, an important question. And I think that the I think that the thing that is going to have a bigger influence on our understanding of politics moving forward, it's not just about the the, um, the role that satire and disinformation have played, and it's not about Facebook predominantly. I think the bigger question has to do with how Americans make decisions about what to trust and what not to trust. I mean, so... The reason that people share this kind of content, uh, the share the information that isn't well supported by evidence and, and doesn't correspond with events in the real world, it can happen for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it happens because we're just moving too quick. If we see something that we've seen before, we tend to think it's true. If we see something that's coming from our friends, we tend to put a little too much faith in the things that our friends share with us. Sometimes we are biased by our political motivations. If we want something to be true, if we want a candidate to look good, we're, we're inclined to, to believe the stuff that makes that candidate sound good. And sometimes it's related to uh, social norms and social expectations. So we have seen a uh, rather sizable change in the last 20 years in how People talk about the role of the news media and the role of expertise in deciding what to believe. There was a time when the American public was um, expected to be attentive to the news and expected to 
place a certain level of trust in what they learned based on what the news said and based on what the experts who had investigated these questions might say. So what scientists and what uh, um, government officials and what investigative reports had found. Today, however, we see a, a great deal of conflict over what are the things that we trust. We see partisans on both sides uh, critiquing, fact-checking, sometimes going so far as to call it propaganda or, or yellow journalism. We see that uh, around contentious science issues, people tend to feel less trusting of scientists. So, for example, if you bring up the subject of climate change, people's confidence in science goes down. Mm, interesting. And, and this means that when people are trying to make a decision about what to believe, if you can't rely on expertise and evidence, you're left with your gut. You're left with your, your sense of, well, what just feels right to me? And that's, that makes us really vulnerable to, to bias, to our own personal predispositions. Absolutely. And that makes us vulnerable to being manipulated. Well, Professor Garrett, let's, let's do this. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue this discussion. And uh, we'll dive deeper into the subject of fake news and, and what impact it's having on us today. When we come back, this is the Matt Townsend Show, and we're speaking with Professor R. Kelly Garrett. We'll be right back. back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he is away sick. We wish him well and a healthy and speedy recovery. We're speaking with Professor R. Kelly Garrett, who teaches communication at Ohio State University. He received his Ph.D. from the University of Michigan. His research interests include the, story, the study of online political communication, online news, and the ways citizens and activists uh, use technologies to shape their engagement with political topics. His recent work focuses on how people's exposure to and perceptions of political information are related to their political beliefs. Uh, Professor Garrett, uh, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, thanks for having me. I was hoping that you could uh, kind of get into some of the numbers about how many people, what's the percentage of people that are being fooled by these fake news stories that are coming out? Well, so there are a variety of sources that provide estimates. Um, it really depends on which questions, which, which stories you're talking about. Um, I would suggest, first of all, that we don't need huge numbers of people to be persuaded for these uh, stories to be damaging. You mentioned in the opening segment about uh, the, the recent con uh, Pizzagate controversy and the, the fact that a, a, an individual was mobilized to take a gun into a public restaurant and uh, fire his weapon because he had been... Uh, convinced that there was something to the conspiracy theories that he was seeing online. We don't need a huge number of incidents like this for it to be a concerning precedent. Now, as for the precise numbers, uh, I have some data that show, for example, that um, 
Well, so in my data, I haven't looked at the kinds of fake news stories that have been talked about recently. I wasn't focusing on fake news that was circulating on Facebook specifically, but on the kinds of things that people were talking about during the election, the, the role of uh, immigration, the role of uh, the Affordable Care Act, the influence of uh, uh, violent extremism, and so forth. And so I don't have the data to answer the questions I think you're asking, but there, what we do see is that um, a sizable minority of people are persuaded of stories that, that don't have grounding in the truth. Now, it's difficult to know how much of that is due to Facebook or how much of it is due to the things people encounter online. What we look for instead are for patterns. The people who use these uh, social media more often, do they tend to embrace the beliefs more strongly? And, and as I said previously, right now I don't have strong evidence that that's the case, although it remains to be seen whether that's whether that holds up for 2016. Right, right. So, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the danger of, of some of these fake news stories. Who, what types of people are they that, that are posting these fake news stories and, and why are they doing it? Right. Um, so there are, I think that coming back to the distinction of the different kinds of, of uh, fake news makes a difference here. So satire is typically generated for profit. There are people who create political parody and they post it online because they're hoping that people will share it. And as a result of the sharing, they'll generate ad revenue, get revenue through Facebook or Google. Now, both those two companies, Google and Facebook, have said that they're going to change the way they pay people for the content they share, and they're not going to reward people who are spreading information that isn't true. And this is complicated because uh, there are certainly some kinds of parody that people would widely agree are, are valuable and can be entertaining, as you mentioned earlier, The Daily Show, and uh, other kinds of widely known uh, political content, The Onion. There are when we turn to things like propaganda and disinformation, though, those are probably not being done primarily for the profit that you generate by revenue from Facebook, but instead because there is value to the political candidate whose campaign is spreading inaccurate information about an opponent, because there's the chance that that's going to help get their supporters mobilized to vote or to get their opponent's supporters less mobilized. Right, And when we're talking about foreign disinformation, we, we have the Russian government has long used disinformation as a means of trying to sway politics in its region and globally. And there is a significant risk in the, uh, in the current state that we are right now, where people are increasingly distrustful of news sources and expertise and more inclined to rely on their instincts and their hunches we're uniquely susceptible to disinformation campaigns, and that's something I think we have to be very careful about. Yeah, and you mentioned Russian propaganda. It, it You know, when we were talking about this earlier, a thought came to mind that, oh, this is very similar to what happened in, in World War II and, and all the Nazi propaganda that was out there as well, trying to get support behind that movement. Um, Absolutely. The, the, a lot of the research that we're building on today when we talk about misinformation and, and trying to correct um, people's beliefs around getting, trying to get people to accept evidence or to respect expertise uh, 
a lot of that is being is building on the work done to fight propaganda done in the 1940s and 1950s. Yes. Now, so obviously, as you mentioned, there are people out there that they're either trying to get their idea across or to support their political candidate. And then there are people that are just trying to make money and and put a piece of entertainment out there. What what kind of an obligation do these these people that are either doing satire or presenting fake news, what kind of an obligation do they have to present it as fake news, to give it that disclaimer? I think that the disclaimer is essential. Uh, and I think that this is one thing that the online companies are, are invested in, in figuring out how to do. Um, I don't think that we want to stifle the creation of political dissent in the form of satire, but I do think we want to make sure that it's highly visible when content is being shared that is not intended to be taken as real news, because we've seen in this last election there were a number of instances where people spread things because they didn't read carefully, because they just thought the headline was catchy, even when these were hoaxes. So I think that it's important that we mark things as satire. Now, we have to be careful because in some work that I did back in in 2011, I found that when you marked news as uh, containing inaccuracies, that would convince people who were predisposed to doubt that information that they really needed to be suspicious of it. But the people who were predisposed to believe it telling them right in the moment, no, there's a problem here, this, this isn't true, actually led them to ignore the correction. I'm, I am concerned that the satirical label could have a similar effect. People might say, oh, this is real, I don't care what they say, that they're, they're labeling it satire, but the people who put that label on there are biased. So it would be important, I think, for the creators of the content to be forthcoming about it. Interesting. Um, and yeah, especially for satirists, it seems making it clear, clear that it's, you know, satire, but maybe not doing so in a way that would completely jeopardize the integrity of, of the, of the comedy or or what they're trying to accomplish with, with entertaining their audience. These are not easy problems to deal with. Right. So, um... You know, obviously, we've another problem that that we've had a lot of, uh, and you mentioned email uh, scam artists. You know, people, the prince of of some foreign country that's trying to convince you that you should send them money. Uh, is fake news the next attractive business opportunity to to entrepreneurs and scam artists alike? I think that it has been profitable, and I think that's part of the reason that we've seen. Uh, it's become so widespread. And I think that's precisely what Google and Facebook were responding to when they said they were going to change how they distributed ad revenue and weren't going to reward people for creating hoaxes and creating uh, and, and, and promoting the dissemination of inaccurate news stories. Um, whether I do think that they're changing their financial model will dissuade some people. I think it will reduce the number of people who are doing it for profit. But uh, the, the kinds of claims that you were referring to in the email, when, when people say, uh, well, you can stand to make a lot of money real quick if you respond to this email and provide us with this kind of information, those kinds of um, 
scams are going to continue, and we may see them morph into more politically motivated scams, scams that are playing off of people's fears and anxieties about the political situation. I think that that's a risk um, that we'll have to watch for very carefully. Mm. Uh, okay, so now let's let's talk a little bit more about Facebook. I know that we you mentioned that Facebook obviously isn't the only offender in in fake news, but why do why do Facebook posts and other social media sites that that where you can post why do those posts and groups tend to head south and and turn hostile so frequently? So there are a couple things that are unique to communication on Facebook that I think make this problem more pronounced. One is that we are connected to, uh, to people that we know. And so the, the recommendations that we get from those people, we tend to trust more than we would trust sources that we encounter on our own. There's been some really interesting work uh, dating back 10 or 15 years now, looking at what people say they, they're willing to put their faith in. And, and interestingly, uh, many Americans put more confidence in something that they hear from a friend than they would put into a professional news editor, someone who's actually trained in selecting high-quality content and separating truth from fiction. Mm. Those people they don't trust. They trust their friends who are just, you know, like them. They're prone to making mistakes, just like you and me, prone to sometimes going too quick and clicking or sharing something that maybe we shouldn't have. Um, They are even more trusting of computer algorithms than they are of journal, uh, journalists and editors. So that's part of it. We, we put our faith in the stuff that our friends share with us, and that leads us to lower our guard and maybe not vet the information quite as carefully as we might, as we probably should. And again, you know, it, it kind of goes along with what you're saying earlier about maybe there's an underlying desire in these people to, depending on what their belief systems are, to to believe what their friends are telling them because they, they want it to be true. That's true. And I would say it's also, that can be taken as, well, gosh, aren't other people silly? They're, they're just so biased. <laughs> they only want to see the world the way they see it. But I would frame it in a slightly different way so that everyone can recognize this tendency in themselves. None of us want to be fools. None of us want to be gullible. And one of the things that we guard against is being manipulated by the people we don't trust. We know that Americans are increasingly distrustful of people who disagree with them politically. Republicans and Democrats are increasingly willing to say that the people on the other side of the aisle are mean-spirited, dishonest, stupid, and hateful. And when you view people through that lens, it's no wonder that you're going to be skeptical of claims that challenge things you believe, challenge things that make your side look good. You don't want to be duped by your opponent. You don't want to be tricked into believing that your side has done something wrong. And so you do a very, what seems like a very rational thing in the moment. You scrutinize. You're a critical thinker, except that we do that differentially. We are critical thinkers when the news challenges what we want to believe. But we tend to accept without much consideration claims that affirm what we are already inclined to believe. 
Professor Garrett, as we wrap up the interview here, what is what is something that we can do to better arm ourselves or to not be so gullible? What are where can we get more reliable news, and how can we safeguard against this? So I would suggest that the problem is not finding more accurate news. It is processing the stuff that we encounter with a little more care. Um, don't be so quick to take apart arguments that say that your side may be making a misstep or that the issue you believe in could have negative consequences. And don't be so willing to accept the things that inform the, that, that lead you to feel stronger about your own perspectives. I think that if we can be more systematic uh, in our critical thinking, applying it to both sides, that can certainly help. Um, take a little more time before sharing something. Read the article through. Take a moment to decide, is this satire or is this intended as real news? If it's not being reported anywhere else, it's probably a sign that you ought to be careful before you spread it yourself. You don't need to be the first one out there. If this is important news, it is going to make it into the into the public sphere. People are going to hear about it. So don't be in such a rush. Um, I think that the mistakes that people make aren't made because they are trying to do harm. They're made because they're trying to contribute to the world in a way that they think helps. We just have to be a little more careful about how we make those contributions. Professor Garrett, thank you so much uh, for your time with us here on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. Professor Garrett is the communication professor at Ohio State University, and he's been talking to us about fake news. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll continue the discussion. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. That was such a fascinating interview with Professor Garrett, who is a communications professor at Ohio State University, talking to us about fake news and what we can do to sort of safeguard ourselves against these stories and not necessarily trying to find the most reliable source of news, but being being sure that we process with more care the news stories that do come in front of us and not being so quick to accept the stories that coincide only with our belief systems and maybe being a little more open-minded. We'll take another quick break. When we come back, we've got a lot more fun ahead of us and uh, maybe some more tributes to our wonderful Sadie Nielsen, who's uh, celebrating or observing her last day here on the Matt Townsend Show. She's got a tear falling from her face right now. We'll, We'll be right back in just a minute. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning. This is uh, the Matt Townsend Show. Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's sick. Here with Terry South, our producer, and uh, Sean O'Neill, who once again has... Decided to wake up early and be the board operator for us. Thank huh? you. Wake up. Huh? <laughs> He's still asleep. Anyway, we're celebrating today Lost and Found Day. Anybody ever lost something and found it in the Lost and Found box or at the office? Anything interesting? Nothing? <sighs> That's good. I've lost my mind. Did you find it I've in lost, the box? I've lost sleep. Okay. 
A little harder to find in a box or an office, but uh, well, it's good. It sounds like nobody in here has really lost anything. Uh, I don't want to say tangible because that, not to say that your your mind or anything of value. Yes, well, anything mm. that you personally <laughs> hey, value. I value my sleep. Something that you can hold in your hands. Let's say. There we go. I think we've cleared that up. We're also uh, commemorating Sadie. Now, commemorating is probably not a good word. We're honoring Sadie Nielsen on the program today because it is her last day. So we'll uh, we'll head over her to her in a second. We've got a lot of fun coming up on the show today. We're going to be uh, replaying an interview with uh, Tom English about tackling the myth of the self-made man. We've also got some interesting stories here about uh, a man who tried to rob a dollar store and claimed that... Uh, he was just fishing when he got caught. That'll make more sense here in a second. And uh, also a woman who used not a very good object to uh, <laughs> to search for something under her couch. Interesting. We'll get to that in a second. But first, let's head on over to Sadie Nielsen, our outgoing, wonderful producer who's going to share with us right now what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? A second Georgia Southwestern State University police officer died Thursday after he was shot on Wednesday in Americus, Georgia, by a man identified as Minkel Lembrick. Officer Jody Smith succumbed to his injuries within 24 hours after his colleague, Officer Nicholas Smarr, who was also shot during the incident, died from his wounds. The university released a statement describing Smith as a bright, young, energetic officer. Law enforcement officials went initially went on a manhunt for Lembrick, 32 years old, but after a standoff, he was pronounced dead from an apparent self-inflicted gun wound. Only 51% of 30-year-old Americans make more money than their parents did at the same age. Economists and sociologists from Stanford, Hartford, and the University of California have learned. The results of their study reflect a shocking decline from four decades prior when 92% of American 30-year-olds in 1970 earned more than their parents did at a similar age. It isn't immediately clear why Americans aren't earning as much, but economic growth and the widening income gap are likely causes. Donald Trump's latest cabinet pick is Andy Pootster, the CEO of fast food chains including Hardee's and Carl's Jr., who is Trump's pick for labor secretary. Pootster is an outspoken critic of raising minimum wage above $9 an hour or expanding overtime protections and has strongly supported the repeal of Obamacare and opposed worker protections rolled out by the current administration. And finally... Mm-hmm. So when I was younger, um, my grandma had a Barbie toy car for me. You know, those little driving around yes. cars things. Yes. And I loved it. And a dad had a similar... I won't say how I know about them, though. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, um, so they've, you know, updated these toy cars to reflect the ages and um, so there was an amateur mechanic in Illinois who decided to make his power wo- his child's Power Wheels toy car run on a real engine. And he reached speeds of 40 miles per hour. <laughs> uh, Kyle Kuta, he shared a video showing how he took his Power Wheels vehicle based on a Cadillac Escalade and replaced it with a 12-volt engine el- electric engine with a 5-horsepower 160cc Honda engine. So he, the video shows him taking it, the car for a test drive, and he reached speeds of 40 miles per hour. And he said, um, like you said, he made it with a four, five horsepower, 60, 160cc Honda engine. 
and it, it turned into an unstable 40 mile per hour death trap. And he doesn't really recommend putting your children in toy cars that go that fast. But it was really funny watching him. I mean, he's just cruising down the street. There's someone in a real car following him, and he is just going super fast. What a cool dad. He had a helmet on, though, right? Yeah, he did. did. Yeah. So he was, you know, sort of safe. Yeah, kind of. Other than the plastic car that's going to catch on fire. Just for comparison, <laughs> those cars usually only go about three miles per hour. So, Oh, and that, that's the fast – That those are the fast cars, the yes. three mile per hour. So 40 miles per hour is really kicking it. You know, I need to talk to this dad because we bought one of those a couple of Christmases ago, and the batteries on that thing just just die so quickly. They stink, yep. And that's why you see so many of them in thrift stores. Mm-hmm. Because nobody, because to get a new battery costs just as much to buy a brand new car. Exactly. Wow. Sadie, thanks again. We'll be back to talk with you here again in the next hour. You nailed it again. So we te- we tease a couple of interesting stories. The first one about uh, a woman who did something that probably wasn't the best idea. Fire officials in Maryland say a mobile home was destroyed after the owner accidentally set her couch on fire while attempting to see under it with a lighter. The office of the state fire marshal said in a statement the fire happened Friday around 1 p.m. at the home on Kent Road in in Earlville. The office said that the $20,000 mobile home and its contents are a complete loss. Officials say it took 30 30 firefighters about 15 minutes to get the blaze under control. So, folks, when you're trying to find something under your, your trailer park couch, make sure to use a flashlight, maybe your cell phone, uh, or maybe just uh, move the couch and try to find what's under there. Don't use a lighter or matches. And don't even try to uh, spark a couple of rocks together. Anyway, hopefully she's all right, though. Also, a 29-year-old Daytona Beach man was arrested Saturday evening after trying to rob a family dollar store in Deltona. Uh, With a shirt wrapped around his head, Sean Torres walked into the store shortly after 8.30 p.m. and demanded money from the store clerk. Sheriff's Office spokesman Andrew Gant said when the clerk denied Torres' demands... He threatened to shoot the employee and reached into the back of his shorts as if he had a gun. But then he ran away without any money, Gant said. Someone in a sheriff's office helicopter spotted Torres at the edge of a nearby pond. He was then seen wading through the water. As they closed in on Torres, deputies said the man submerged himself except for his face. Torres tried explaining that he was just fishing and that his fishing pole was in the water. Of the attempted robbery, he claimed, the guy who did it went that way. The man then surrendered and trudged back to shore, saying he didn't want to be bit by a canine dog, deputy said. Nice try. You know, when my brothers and I, uh, growing up, TP'd somebody's house and somebody from the neighborhood came home, everybody scattered in different directions, and unfortunately I was the youngest— so uh, he was able to catch up with me, and I decided if I slow down and, and uh, start walking, maybe he'll think that I'm just some, uh, some eight-year-old that happens to be out on a walk at 1230 at night. Maybe he won't know that I was actually one of the culprits TPing that house. Yeah, it didn't work. And uh, this guy 
was able to successfully get me to rat on every single one of my brothers and friends who who helped with the teeping. So, uh snitches get stitches. Be careful. <laughs> yeah, I've got plenty of plenty of scars from my brothers over the years. Anyway, Terry, what else is going on? So, the uh Last few months, the media has taken some hits. In general, when it comes to public confidence, and we just talked about fake news last hour mm-hmm. and all this. So uh, Morning Consult did a, uh, a poll to find out what truly is America's confidence in media. And the, the a September Gallup poll, a different poll, showed only 32% of Americans say they have a great deal of trust in the mass media. That's a record low since they began tracking in 1972. And they have this nice little graph, and it just keeps plummeting as you get towards modern day. Mm-hmm. Um, the Morning Consult poll released Wednesday, they asked people, um, people say they trust news outlets as much a higher rate when asked about specific news outlets. Right? Hmm. So when you ask them about the media as a whole, media is bad, media is horrible, but okay. you ask about individual ones, they're like, oh, they're pretty good. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. It says nine outlets asked about the poll received more than 50% confidence from the respondents in this poll. So you go through and it says ABC is viewed as credible by 67% of the people that were asked about this poll, the highest ranked outlet in the poll. Even uh, what President-elect Trump is only uh, – he singled out what the New York Times is the failing New York Times and CNN is the Clinton News Network. They're both seen as credible at 63% and 60%. Interesting. By the general public. Respectively, Hmm. Trump himself only has a 50% approval rating at the moment. So is there like a 30% uh, chunk of people that are just not going to accept anything that's presented on these – in these news organizations? You're going to have some that show that's absolutely not credible. Like ABC is at 9%, CBS is 10 NBC is 11 right? So, I mean, it's a small amount, but still, it's there's a higher amount of people who see them as very credible or credible. Is Comedy Central on there? No. <laughs> Any idea how long ago the, the survey was taken? Uh, they released it Wednesday. I believe they took it within the last month. Okay. So it says, it goes on, it says, this is similar to when you start asking about Congress, right? When you ask, Congress famously has had a, they're saying here, 20% approval rating or lower. Right, just mm. horrible. Oh, I've, I've heard it in the teens. Yeah, it's yeah. just bad, or even in single digits, where it's like Congress mm. is the most brutal thing. Then you ask about an individual congressman, and they're like, "Oh yeah, they're great," and they get reelected all the time. But See, Congress is horrible. But individual Congress people get back into office, and we need more of those people, like the guy that that does the barbecues. We need to get some more queso. Yeah, hmm. so it'd, be, says, it'd be interesting actually to compare the ratings of some of those station, some of those networks compared to their approval rating. Well, yeah. But it's just the idea that if media is so bad as a mass, then why individually are the individual channels seen as positive? And it says here in November, uh, as we're talking about low congressional ratings, it says incumbent members of of the Senate had a 90% re-election rate, while members of the House had a 97% re-election rate. Mm -hmm. But overall, they're 20% approval. Hmm. That doesn't make sense. You should vote people out if they're so bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. I hate Congress. But you, I'm going to vote for you. Yeah, man. And this You're writer, my guy. This writer goes, you can probably think of other examples like, I hate the school system, but that kid's teacher's great. <laughs> right? So your access to the school system is fine. Well, I it's think, the system but I think itself. It, I think with the school system, yeah. you can actually separate the teacher from the school system. 
yeah. in your head a lot easier than you can separate a Con- congressman from Congress. Like right. that film Stand and Deliver. Right. I would want James or Edward James Olmos to be my math teacher every day go. of the week. Mm-hmm. So public opinion is an interesting thing to track. It is. Because it's not consistent across the it's board. It's never consistent. Um, and a lighter note. Who is the most overrated actor, or excuse me, overpaid, not rated, overpaid I, actor in Hollywood? I'm not going to say anything because I know oh, the answer. You know are the they answer. over? Are they over? Are they overrated because they're overpaid? Could be. Oh man, a most overpaid actor. Meaning well, the right, money they're paid versus what's returned on box office. Well, right movies. now I would say Donald Trump, but he's not taking that salary, so right, and he doesn't really have a movie, so. What, yeah. what would it, do you have any um, any guesses? Is this in history or currently? Currently, currently. So right now, who, which actor in Hollywood gets paid the most but has the least return when it comes to people actually watching and paying for the movie? Second year in a row, uh, right? Third. Oh, Ryan third Gosling. Oh, it is second year in a row. He's on the list. Okay, then it's uh, Chris Pratt. No, no, he's doing so pretty I think well. Chris Pratt would have a very high. Oh yeah, yeah there's a lot of people high. like Chris Pratt. Uh, so if it's not, maybe Ryan Reynolds. Uh, he might be on the list. He's not here in the top okay. five. I don't, I'm... Number one for the second year in a row, Johnny Depp. Okay. I did have him in my head. But... He yep. returned just $2.80 at the box office for every dollar he was paid. Well, okay. Right? Because he had Alice Through the Looking Glass, which right. bombed. And so, multiple movies he's had in a row are which, just struggled. I'm sorry. I don't think that should have bombed. I thought that was a right, pretty good movie. It did. Regardless of your, I opinion. understand that. I understand how that works. <laughs> Just wanted to finish I, that there. I, I do criticize two, movies, but you know, two hey. was uh, Will Smith five dollars return of the box oh. office for every dollar he was paid. Mm-hmm. Chatting Tatum, we just have way him right. Mm-hmm. Six dollars for every dollar. Will Ferrell is six fifty for every dollar he was. You know, wow. And uh, George Clooney six dollars seventy cents return of the box office for every dollar he was paid. Okay, but we don't need to be. We don't need to be worried about these guys. They're going to be okay. Well, they're oh, fine. Oh, I'm sure they're fine. They're going to be set for they're, life. They're just apparently being overpaid versus what is produced from their work. Well, so we just might not be fine watching their movies. How many of them have put? You know, you, you got sequels out. I right. mean, that, that, that's that's why I think Johnny Depp is right there at the top of the list. When you're making the fifth pirate movie, you, you, I'm sorry. Yeah, we've seen it before. No, no, it's totally different this time. Not sure. with Javier Bardem. Yeah. Oh, right. We haven't seen him be some sort of zombie pi- or pirate or mm, whatever no, he is. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, well, it's, whole, it's a different show, and I'll probably go see it. Yeah. You're in the ghost story. <laughs> anyway, um, before we take a break, as you know, we're also celebrating today National Pastry Day, and I couldn't help but think of a news story that we covered uh, a few weeks back by uh, one of our great reporters on our empty – News team, Matt Townsend news team, Sandy Jacobs. I thought, maybe, I thought you were saying it was an empty news team. Like, oh. like there was, there's a news team, but there's nobody in it. I will neither uh, claim or I will neither deny or, uh, yeah. Anyway, Sandy Jacobs is here to talk to us more about uh, a pastry that's so good that people are doing something rather interesting in order to get it. I'm standing outside the popular bakery with dozens of pastry lovers waiting to satisfy their sweet tooth with a cronut, which is a donut-croissant hybrid. People are dying to try and get a taste of the bakery's new red velvet cronut before they're sold out. Some people have been waiting for hours. Excuse me, sir, how long have you been standing out here? 
Eh, only about five hours, which isn't that long. You know, this is like Broadway for me. Five hours? Oh, these cronuts must be good, huh? Oh, they're the best. I like the doughiness of donuts, but the flakiness of croissants, so it's the best of both worlds, really. Now, there seems to be a strange odor in the air. Is that the cronuts? No, it's actually that dead body you just stepped over. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even notice. Yeah, few people do. Uh, we just had a body here last week when they released the banana cream pie flavor. Mmm, banana cream pie. That sounds good. So getting back to this red velvet cronut. Everyone, clear the area. All right, where is it? Where's the new cronut? Right through those doors, young man. Okay, coming through. Everyone step aside. With the Matt Townsend Show, I'm Sandy Jacobs. Thank you, Sandy. What a, what a great and fascinating story about cronuts and what people are willing to do to get one. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, you're going to hear from Dr. Matt Townsend, although he will not be in the studio. We're playing a repeat of, a, of an interview he did with Tom English about tackling the myth of the self-made man. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, becoming successful, it's a goal for many of us. And, uh, in fact, if you think about it in America, that's like you gotta be you got to be a self-made man or a self-made woman. That thought has been taught to many a person and, um, and a child even. So how, how do you truly become successful? Is it just through your hard work? Is it through your innovation, your ideas? Is it really just about you latching on to what you need to do and then all of a sudden you make it happen and the next thing you know, you are a self-made person? Well, according to our next guest, Tom English, um, he he wrote an article tackling the myth of the self-made man and is here today to help us understand that maybe this whole concept of being a self-made man, it's, it's maybe just more of a myth. Tom English, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for being with us today. What What do you think? First of all, how did you get into this idea of even wanting to cover the concept of the self-made man? That's a good question, actually. It's, it's something that's been on my mind for quite a while. Um, since I was at university, actually, I did my undergraduate degree in history and social policy. And the social policy side of things covered quite a lot of areas such as citizenship and welfare. welfare. And I remember one of my lecturers once saying, you know, I can't be doing with these people who say they're self-made, you know, that, that they've done it all on their own and that they've made money all on their own and not give credit to anyone else because, of course, everybody has to rely on, on somebody else. And I got thinking about that. I thought, actually, that's a really good point. Um, who, who actually is ever truly a self-made man? And that certainly isn't to denigrate or dismiss individual efforts or contributions. Yeah. To becoming successful. Um, but it's something that stuck with me as that, and it, it's, kind of, it's kind of played on my mind. I've, I've always wanted to, to write a piece on it. Um, I did actually put something on Stephen R. Covey's Facebook page. Oh, did um, you? Yeah, when, when, he was, when he was alive a few years ago before his, his past, I actually put something on one of the comments about how 
I didn't believe there was anything as such as a self-made man and that it didn't actually exist hmm. in its purest form. And he actually, he reposted that as a discussion point and it got some quite interesting discussion <laughs> going because I think, in a sense, it is a paradox, isn't it? It's, yeah. On the one hand, I'm saying I don't, I don't actually think that the self-made man in, it, in its purest form exists, but on the other hand, you have to do something, right? You know, you, you don't just rely on other people to do it. You have to have some get up and go. And that's why in the article itself, I actually used the example of, of Rocky, the Rocky movies, because I absolutely love those films. Mm. They're, they're hugely inspiring. They're very well put together. They're great stories. They're very clear, very understandable to a large audience. And yet, you know, they, they seem to imbue the sense of individual achievement but yet, when you actually watch them, you couldn't go away from any one of those films and believe that Rocky's actually done it all on his own. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't dismiss the role of Adrian or uh, right. of Mickey or any of the other characters in, in, the, in the film. So I thought it was quite an interesting paradox to address because I think sometimes when we do get successful, we can get wrapped up in ourselves and think, well, look at me, I'm, I'm the man, I've made it. Yeah, and we... I mean, it's it's almost like, like you said, paradoxical because they are showing their success. And in the movies, for example, they show all of the people around that were part of the game. But it's almost like we like to elevate people and make it about one person instead of making it about the unit that got them there. Yes, I would agree with that. And just on this topic, I was reading an article by a business academic called Henry Mintzberg. And this article was actually, I think it was about 10 years old. He wrote it in the Financial Times. And um, he's basically arguing in the article that what we need is we need more community ship and less leadership. Because the issue with leadership, I mean, I'm fascinated by leadership. I find it extremely interesting how leaders can influence the success or failure of an organization. But actually what leadership can do and what focusing on leadership too much can do can actually reduce the success or failure of an organization to one person so say one organization is really really successful um, i think one of the quotes in his article is you know show the media a, success, a successful organization and they'll show you a successful leader as if it's all hinging on that one person right and anybody who's worked in any organization be it, you know, a success or otherwise, will tell you that there are certainly an awful lot more components to it than just one man or woman at the top. So true. Uh, that's an interesting concept, uh, community ship. Because in, in yeah. the end, what some of the best leaders I've ever had were the ones that could get a sense of community going and a sense of almost self-direction in the community. So, it, I mean, it, it's... But we, again, like you're saying, we focus on the one instead of the whole. Um, in, in your um, article, in your work, you talk about the idea of leadership Alzheimer's. What, what yeah. do you mean by that? Explain that. That was interesting. Well, I'm actually, I'm actually quoting from the Pope there. That's, not my, that's certainly not my concept, but I thought it was an excellent concept to really address this idea of, of people forgetting where they've come from. Um, you know, once people get to a certain level of, of success or elevation, you know, it's the idea that people forget where they've, they've come from. And more particularly, that they've forgotten who has helped them to get there in the first place. And I think an excellent example of, of a global CEO who hasn't done that, he hasn't fallen foul of the, 
leadership Alzheimer's is actually SAP CEO Bill McDermott. And his, his biography, Winner's Dream, is actually a great example of, of a leader who's, you know, he, he started out as a sales exec for, I think it was Xerox or somebody like that. And he's, you know, risen through the ranks to become the chief executive of the largest, I think they're the largest software company in the world. And he talks in that book about looking after your ecosystem. And what he means by that is particularly in business, and sales can be related to business as a whole. Um, what, what he means by ecosystem is thinking about what needs to happen to make things work, um, where, where the dependencies are. In his case, when he was selling photocopiers, he talked about how he needed to form relationships with, with doormen in hotels to get into hotel lobbies hmm. and to set up his ex exhibitions there. Um, for me, I work in sales in my day job. I think about my own ecosystem. I think about the end users. So for me, I actually sell to primarily university libraries. But I think a lot about our end users, the students. And they're a very big part of, of the ecosystem within which I work. So I think that the, the leadership Alzheimer's, it's very much about forgetting, forgetting that, you know, forgetting those who've been involved in, in helping you to be successful, those with whom you've had to collaborate and add value to, to get to a position of, of elevated status. Yeah, it, it's... Um... It's it's an interesting thing because you when you get into the sales world you you always hear you know the bosses the managers saying you know it's about your network get get as many people make those calls build those relationships and yet when yeah. you start killing it and making it big it you don't necessarily think about the people is that just our pride that kicks in or or what is it is it is it us just trying to manifest the myth of the self made man. I think I think it's natural. I think I think I think hubris. I think pride and hubris are, are very very natural when when we are successful because we do we do have it in us to kind of look around and think you know what I've absolutely nailed that you know that sale was awesome yeah or that performance the performance that financial year was was absolutely fantastic we can kind of look at it and think you know I've I've nailed that I'm the man kind of thing but then and, and I think that's natural within everybody but I think what what separates us from from other animals is, is the fact that we're able to check ourselves and we're actually able to think to ourselves, you know what? Yes, I've had success, but look at all these people who've been involved in that success. Um, I've got a colleague at work who, who works in sales support and she's absolutely brilliant. And I'll tell anybody, anyone who talks to me about, about my success in sales, I'll, I'll mention her. Hmm. I'll say she's the superstar. You know, she's the one who, who does so much that allows us to get things done and make things happen. And I think if you can, if you can put a name on it of somebody else who's helped you to be successful in any way, then it helps to keep that hubris in check because it's just a way of giving yourself a bit of a reality check and thinking, well, actually, yes, there has been a success, but it certainly didn't come all from my own doing. There were other people on the path and along the way who helped out. Oh, that's so – it's so true. And, yeah, just just always having to – except uh, because people will give you praise and, and um, you'll get all this attention because you made the big sell or whatever. But to be able to list everybody's name that was part of it every single time, you also mm -hmm. probably ensure your success tomorrow as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty short-term game to play to go around bragging about your, your successes and not giving credit where credit's due because yeah. it's 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 the quickest way to undermine trust as well. It's the quickest way to 
to get people defensive and then start to try and claim their turf in the, the success as well. And it, it's, it's kind of a destructive um, way of going about things, I think. Is um, d- as we as we kind of talk about this because th- this this I don't know if you ever heard about it in the United States. There was a lot of issue about uh, President Obama making a comment about business people that business people didn't make their money. They, they didn't make mm-hmm. their businesses on their own, um, and mm-hmm. it it turned into like a big push because a business owner's like, are you kidding me? But then Donald, I mean, mm-hmm. but he was talking about, but President Obama was talking about roads and about uh, taxes yeah. that have paid for roads and have created an infrastructure that made it so if you're blessed enough to live in the United States, you already have a hand, you know, a, a, a leg up in, in the rest of the world. Is, I mean, to what degree do we continue to give credit? Where does this credit ever end? for how we became successful? Because it goes everywhere and for years and generations, really. Sure, sure. It, it absolutely does. And I think I think being mindful of, of these factors like roads and the internet and things like that that are actually critical to the success and the operation of many businesses, I think that's really, really important. Um, there's a phrase that my mom used to use when I was growing up, and it referred to... Uh, you know, assistance that you've got from others who've gone before. And the phrase that's used was drinking from wells that others have dug. And I really like that phrase because yeah. it, it, it kind of talks about infrastructure. It kind of talks about the building blocks that need to be in place for you to, to get some goodness or some value. So water, of course, is essential to life. And this idea of, you know, somebody else going before you and being a trailblazer in doing something that allows you to, then subsequently go on to achieve something yourself. I think that's a great idea and it's a great way of looking at things because we all we all benefit from infrastructure. That's that's just an absolute fact. You know, irrespective of anyone's political views, you know, whatever they think about President Obama or his comments or the context they're made in, nobody can actually deny that, you know, like a like a shipping like a trucking company, for example, they need roads to go on. If there are no roads then they're gonna have a a much harder time um, getting goods from from A to B, and um, and the, the same with any any business that relies on the internet as well. There's so many businesses now that have started because of the internet um, that you know it's it's absolutely impossible to uh, to not recognise the the value and the necessity of of sound infrastructure. Hmm. Let's take a break again. We are speaking with Tom English who wrote an article tackling the myth of the self-made man. He's walking us through uh, just some of his learnings of life and and the importance of understanding that uh, we're all drinking from wells that others have dug, the wisdom of Tom's mom. That's pretty cool. Again, still impacting the rest of the world and Tom as well. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion, uh, hopefully find some more solutions for how we can make sure We are recognizing all those in our lives that have made a difference in who we are. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Townsend Show. 
You know, we're learning a lot. The importance of uh, focusing on community ship, not just leadership, and uh, the ability to not forget uh, how you got where you are. And there's something powerful, I think, about being able to stay connected to your ancestors, to your history, to everything that makes you be able to live the life you're living today. And I think the minute we disconnect from that, we're in trouble. Tom English is joining us. Tom is an award-winning, innovative field sales executive. He works with Gale Business Unit in England. He's also involved in, in is an, an involved community member. He's a non-executive director of Unity Homes and Enterprise in Leeds, England, and wrote a wonderful article tackling the myth of the self-made man. Tom English, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Matt. Great to have you. Talk about the uh, the way that so just some ways that you've seen to stay connected, to stay connected to the idea of being a community made man, you know, raised by the village man, instead of taking it all on and, and thinking you're the cat's meow. <laughs> Good question. Well, some years ago, now I'll say some years ago because it's actually seven years ago, um, believe it or not, but it's seven years since I became a non-executive director at Unity Housing Association. And that was a purely serendipitous opportunity. I'd, um, I was basically coming to the end of my undergraduate degree and I needed to decide what I was going to do for a career. And at that particular time, I decided that I'd like to work in, in social housing. And so I, did, I actually did a master's straight after my undergraduate degree in social housing. And that led me to an opportunity to become a non-executive director, a board member at Unity Housing. At the time, I thought, you know, are you crazy? Why are you asking me to be a board member? You know, what, what do I know about life? I was, I was a 20-something-year-old guy. Everybody else on the board was about 20 years my senior, or, or there or thereabouts, and um, and I really, I really wasn't, I really wasn't sure about it. And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this a go. And for about the first year or so that I was there, I, I didn't say a whole lot. I just sat there and listened and observed, and really wanted to understand more about the organisation. Hmm. And it's fair to say that over the past seven years that I've been there, I've, I've really grown to to love the organisation. Because of what it does, it was actually first established in the 80s as a response to um, institutional racism within social housing. It's actually what's called the Black and Minority Ethnic Hmm. Housing Association. So it's got a particular focus on black and minority ethnic groups within the community who were disproportionately disadvantaged through um, discriminatory practices that were within um, the social housing sector. So that was kind of where its, its roots lay, and it's, it's remained a very, I would say, a very strongly community-focused organisation. Um, we're very proud of our independence. We're very proud of the fact that we haven't been swallowed up into some large national organisation, that we are um, a community-based organisation that very much caters to the needs of our community. So... What we actually do then, so the name Unity Homes and Enterprise, the homes bit is fairly, is fairly straightforward. We provide bricks and mortar homes of good quality, at affordable rents to those who need those particular homes at the time. Yeah. And we also, on the enterprise side of things, we also support local businesses as well. So we have various business centres that we 
we support in the community. We also have um, a dedicated employment team as well, which, which really helps our tenants to get their CVs sorted out, their, um, what do you call them in America, resumes, that's it. Yeah. Um, so we have a team to help with that. We have um, staff who help with financial advice, with budgeting advice, with helping tenants and members of the community to be self-sufficient as well so that they can manage their income, they can increase their skills and get jobs. And, you know, there's no question about it. There is, there is a business case in that somewhere. You know, it's, it's enlightened self-interest because, of course, our, our lifeblood is, is rental income. It's revenue to the organisation. So we need people to be paying the rent. If they've got jobs, they've got a better chance of paying the rent. Right. If they're financially savvy, they've got a better chance of paying the rent. So, of course, there's inherent within that there is an element of self-interest, but it also does a lot of good, you know. And I'm, I'm very, like I say, I'm very proud to have been associated with Unity. And it's actually coming to the end of my time now. I'm about to, to retire. Mm. I retire in September. It's going to be my final AGM there. And I was actually reflecting on that with, with the chair of the board. And she was saying to me, you know, so, so what have you made of it over the past seven years? And it was quite a, an interesting thing for me to say, but the words that came out of my mouth unrehearsed were, this place is sacred. Hmm. And I really, I really meant that. that. That really came straight from the heart, from the soul. And what I meant by that and why I believe that unity in organizations like it are sacred is because it's focused on serving other people. It's a non-profit organization. It's not interested in making money. It's not interested in, in profit or anything like that. It's, it's motivations, motivations of my fellow board members are to help people, to help the organization to be better, to grow so that we can help more people. And you don't see, or I don't see a lot of that in the world at the moment. If I'm, if I'm perfectly frank, you know, this is yeah. my anecdotal evidence. I see a lot of people trying to monetize things all the time. You know, they're trying to look for an angle. How can we make money out of this? Mm -hmm. You know, how can we charge for this? Whereas at Unity, I, you know, I sit at a board table with about, gosh, I think there's about 11 or 12 others, um, maybe a few less than that. And I see passionate people. I see people having, you know, real serious, discussions about strategy and how to help things in the community more, how we can be better, how we can improve. And, you know, it's all for the purpose of, of making the world a better place, but making the world a better place, not, not overextending ourselves and trying to fix every problem that exists, yeah. but yeah. working within a very clearly defined sphere of influence. Tom, do you sense um, that, because as you were telling that story, you have this long history, you have... You're, you're one that institutionally in the organization has a lot of these connections over the years. You saw the beginning, the middle, and to the present. Um, I wonder sometimes if we, we forget uh, – like we might forget kind of what created your organization simply because when Tom English is done and retires from it and moves on, others may not – they may not have seen that history. They may not have remembered those names or those experiences. And I wonder if sometimes we we create the self-made myth simply because we are all we're always with ourselves, but we don't always see the history like you did. Yeah, and and that is 
that is a good point. I think I think context is really really important, and it's a, it's a conversation I was having with with our chair, along the lines of you know how do we how do we keep this place special? How do we keep the integrity of the organisation once myself and others move on from it? And it's really you know recruiting the right people is really really important. Recruiting the people who who have that sense of social purpose and who are really connected with that, who really engage with that. Yeah. Because history, history is important. You know, we can't live our lives looking in the rearview mirror, but we have to understand the nature of things. We have to understand the context of things. And that can be extremely useful in determining where we want to go as well and, and our future roadmap. So I think, it's, I think it's about perspective. I think it's always about making sure we have a sense of perspective and about being self-aware. And self-aware, I mean, if I talk about sales, self-awareness is one of those intangibles that is absolutely crucial. It's, it's actually really difficult to measure self-awareness. I don't know of any definitive metrics on how to de- define or measure self-awareness. Right. But yet it's absolutely crucial to building relationships, um, to things like sales, to things like leadership, to things like building trust. And I think the more that we strive for that, the more able we are then to deliver value and create value for not just for ourselves, but for others as well. No, I think I think you're right on. And the more the more we talk about it, like like you're talking, like we're talking about it and allowing people to kind of become introspective into their own thinking, I, I think that helps as well. So, Tom English, you've, you've already, you're already helping just by sharing your article and uh, your time with us. Thanks again so much for being with us. My pleasure, Matt. We've learned a lot. Keep up the great work. Man, I'm telling you, that's power, isn't it? Uh, there's power in community and community-ship. Talking about it, being aware of how you integrate with the community so if you had to sit down and, and wonder what what's the key to your success, is it still just you? Oh, I just got, I've got a work ethic you won't believe. Or who are the people associated? Do they need to hear, a, do they need to have a letter? Maybe a call? Maybe start writing down the people that are the key to your success. And maybe it's time to go thank a few of them. Who knows, huh? There's power, folks. We sink and we swim together. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world, remembering that you're part of the good. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're uh, wrapping up this second hour here. And we're still Dr. Mattless, unfortunately, but we do wish him well. We want him to come back. We want him to come back healthy. We don't really want him coughing all over us. That would not be good. At least we have these uh, wonderful mic pop filters that help block some of that. But they can only do so much. Anyway, hope you're geared up for a, a wonderful Friday, wonderful weekend. Stay warm, stay dry, and uh, be careful on the roads out there. We thought before we take another break, we'd share another story with you here, an interesting story. A Cleveland couple was ready for the apocalypse, but apparently not for thieves. 
Tina Brayen says burglars broke into her home early Tuesday while her family was sleeping and made off with five shotguns, a high-powered rifle, a pellet gun, $1,000 worth of ammunition, 12 machetes, smoke grenades, a bulletproof vest, and food rations. Brayen and her husband are members of militia group Three Percenters, a name based on the claim that just 3% of the U.S. population fought in the American Revolution and hoped to use the supplies to protect and provide for themselves in the event of catastrophe or perhaps invasion by another country, Brayen says. Brayen adds she believed the weapons and gear were secure when she went to sleep on Monday night but now suspects one of her two children left a door to the home unlocked. Go! <laughs> exactly. She threw her children under the bus. <sighs> you never do that, do you, Sean? I always do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I try not to. Well, that's that's too bad. It is, it is kind of ironic. Uh, maybe they needed to have uh, invested in a, a security system or something. If you have weapons in the house, it's not a bad idea, especially that many weapons. That's almost like a, a – that's like – they call that a cache of weapons. Yeah. I think maybe the thinking behind that is, well, I've got a gun. If somebody breaks in, I can just right. use it to protect myself. Unless you they're know, but... being sneaky about it. Hmm. I can only hope that this – they had headphones on and were listening to yes. this song as they burglarized the home. Well, it helps you, you know, walk softly. It really does. Man, it's so true. There are certain music that, there's certain music that can just help you uh, be a better burglar. Yes. Thank you, Henry Mancini. <laughs> What's your favorite uh, Pink Panther movie, by the way? Oh, geez. It's got to be the first one. Uh, a Shot in the Dark? I think so. Yep. That's yeah, that the was... first one. That is that is a good one. Yeah. I just like... Uh, the one that I really no. wait—is it a shot in the dark or is I it don't know. the Pink Panther? It's probably the Pink Panther. Hmm. I think but it the, is the one I remember. Is him? There's there's a there's a there's a set of parallel bars right next to a stairway, and he he remembers back to a time when he used to be on the parallel bars at university, <laughs> and he's doing this routine, and he does a dismount, and he ends up falling through down the stairway. Uh. And then Cato was Cato yes. was waiting for him at the oh, bottom and yes. got in a fight with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. I need to go watch those movies again. I know it's that, been too long. Yes, Peter Sellers was a magnificent, magnificent actor. I didn't waste my time with any of the, uh, you know, like the Son of Pink Panther and the Trial of the Pink mm-hmm. Panther. I did kind of like the first Steve Martin Pink Panther movie. Never saw the second okay. one. It was it's it was a great movie for just when you're in the mood to watch something. Stupid. Yeah. You got to be in the right mood. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're going to take another break. Uh, when we come back in the nine o'clock hour, we're going to be speaking with Rod Gustafson, who's uh, from Parent Previews, and he's reviewing a new movie that's out this weekend. And hopefully, he can uh, shed some more light on what's coming out on DVD so that when we're staying indoors this weekend because of the rain and snow, we can be a little more entertained. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning, everyone. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away sick. We wish him well. We wish that cough would go away and also that he would stop watching so many episodes of Arrow while he's home recuperating. I've never seen it. It's probably a good show. Terry, have you seen it? Arrow? Yes. Okay. (laughs) No comment on the... Just trying to stay (laughs) contained. All right. Okay. I liked it. It's not bad. I'm not a regular viewer, but it's not bad. All right. Well, we'll still tease him when he gets back. Mm Mm-hmm. But he, he called himself a nerd for watching it. So Yeah, it was, uh, a, it was a subtle dig. We're just going to leave it alone. Yeah. <laughs> Today is also National Pastry Day. I've got a ball of pastry. What shall I do with that? You've got to roll it, roll it, roll it, until you roll that and this is a This is an acting song, so everybody do the motions it, with it. it. I think we need more action songs like that on a daily, maybe hourly basis on the show. I thought this was Dr. Matt's show, not not Captain Kangaroo. Well, he shouldn't have gotten sick. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. Anyway, so enjoy a pastry. Uh, and even if you don't consider a cronut a pastry, I would like to put in a plug for the cronut. The hybrid of the donut and croissant. Very tasty. It's also Lost and Found Day, so hopefully if you lose something, you can count on uh, people's good nature to return it and get that iPhone back, get that uh, lipstick tube, that USB drive. Do people still carry those around very much, jump drives? I don't see them that often, mm-hmm. but we, uh, some people do. I know we lost a host. Are we going to be able to find it? Hope so. Okay. We still need to look a little harder. Where is the BYU lost and found? I know. <laughs> I'll let you know when I find it. Uh, it is also this, in this hour, we will be having Sadie Nielsen's last news break. Hopefully not ever. But, uh, oh, she shook her head. So that's good news. Speaking of Sadie Nielsen... Let's turn it over to the incomparable Sadie Nielsen to give us her last news break. Let us know what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? Authorities say at least two people have died and others are hurt following a 30-vehicle pileup in a snowy, icy in Michigan interstate near the state capital of Lansing. Michigan State Police are blaming the slippery conditions for the Thursday morning crash on I-96. The pileup forced the closure of the highway in both directions. Several crashes have also been reported on Detroit-area freeways. The International Union for Conservation of Nature on Thursday listed the giraffe to its vulnerable status, meaning the animal is at high risk for extinction. It moves up from the category called least concern. The reason is there was a sharp 36% to 40% decline in 
draft populations in recent decades. In 1985, the group said there were as many as 163,452 drafts. Now the estimate is 97,562. Scientists fear if poaching rates continue, drafts will be gone in the next two decades. For the first time since 1993, life expectancy in the United States has dropped significantly for the entire population, not just certain groups. On average, Americans can now expect to live 78.8 years, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report released Thursday. A statistically significant drop from the 0.1% year year last year. Though this doesn't sound like much, it may foreshadow a larger dip to come, or it may prove to, to be a glitch reversed when 2016 numbers are released next December. And finally, Jeff, do you like Mexican food? Oh, I just went to Maria Bonita's yesterday uh-huh. and uh, got so stuffed that I didn't have dinner. Wow. So, yeah, you're a little obsessed with it, maybe. Yeah, if I could have it every day, I, I would. Okay, well, this man seems to be very obsessed with it, or at least he really likes Mexican food, because he became the first uh, competitive eater ever to finish a California eatery's famous five-and-a-half-pound burrito. YouTuber Joey TV was on hand to film Pablo Martinez, the 18th-ranked competitive eater in a major league eating competition. He tackled a three-foot-long anaconda burrito at the Taqueria. How do you say that? Taqueria. Taqueria Yareli in Fresno. The anaconda burrito became famous on the internet, but no one before Martinez has ever finished it, an an accomplishment that would make his meal free. So he got a free burrito for eating it. See, we all need to find our purpose in life. (laughs) And it sounds like he found his. He found his purpose. He found his little niche in society, and that is eating three-foot-long burritos. Wow. I don't know if I could do that. Well, you just can't fill up on the chips and salsa before the burrito gets there. No, no, no. You can't fill up on anything for two days previous before going to eat that. (laughs) He's probably not going to be hungry for a long time. Yep. So, Sadie, uh, now we want you to explain to us what it is we did to you to make you want to leave the show. Uh, You know, I just love you guys so much and I just have to move on. Wait, did you say you dislove us no, so much? No, I, I just love you oh, guys. Oh, you just so. <laughs> love us so much. I dislove you. So wait, what's next for you? So I'm moving on to a new job. Um, Which is? At doTERRA. That's right. I was thinking it was a uh, new skin. doTERRA. No. Okay. doTERRA. Yes. And I'm just going to be doing pretty much the same thing I do here. Um, they do not have a podcast there, but they do have social media, which is the other thing I'm doing. But this is most a, of the time. This is a, a full time job. No, because no, you're still in school. I'm still in school. All yeah, right. this is still All part right. time. So, do you do they pay you in essential oils? Uh, that will be determined when I get there. <laughs> <sighs> well, uh, don't forget to apply some breathe oil. Yes. As you go into work every day. Will do. And keep in touch. Let us know how you're doing. I will. Let us know how I'll you're enjoying around. the new job. All right, Sadie. I meant it. Incomparable Sadie Nielsen. We're going to miss you. Oh, sad. And Matt's gone. Everybody's leaving the show. Well, Matt's just sick. Oh, right. Okay. So I'm he's going to be back. It's the plan. Okay. I'm hoping to leave. <laughs> the, Sean the, wants to leave this the show. This is the last hour, right? <laughs> <sighs> Looks like it's just you and me, Terry. 
Hopefully that's not true on Monday. Hopefully Matt will be back. Anyway, there's one more story that I want to share with you. Uh, police in Japan are trying to coax elderly drivers from behind the wheel with offers for of cheap meals as the country confronts a worrying rise in accidents involving o- older motorists. Under a scheme launched last week in central Japan, elderly drivers will be given discounts on ramen noodles at 176 outlets of the Sugakia restaurant chain, but only after they surrender their driver's license. The move comes after the prime minister called for more action to address the steep rise in road accidents, some of them fatal, caused by drivers in the over-74 age group. Interesting. Never would have put ramen noodles and driving in the same class. Terry, anything anything else that's interesting you want to have, talk about? Have you ever contributed to an Indiegogo or a Kickstarter or any of those sort of things where they're trying to crowdfund to develop some product? I've invested in VidAngel. Not the same. Thing. Okay. No, then the answer is no. One could be illegal, depending on a court case. Um, a ring that seems to be good, too good to be true apparently is too good to exist. This according to a expose that's been done on this. The marketing team of fundraisers who were seemingly duped by a shiny gadget. The object at hand is called the bio ring or, well, the the object that doesn't seem to exist, to be more accurate, is called the bio ring. Mm -hmm. A waterproof heart rate monitor and fitness tracker that claimed it would be able to do something medical researchers have not yet achieved, count the calories its wearer consumes, and even differentiates between calories from fat, protein, and carbs. Really? So, you know, these fitness trackers everyone has, mostly your bracelets or a watch yeah. of some kind. This is going to be a ring around your finger, obviously. And in it, it could somehow have technologies to differentiate between the types of, of calories you're consuming, which would be interesting if you're, you know, obviously if you're on some sort of a diet or trying to lose weight that way. It's something of a holy grail for diet fitness tracking. Hundreds of people chipped in more than $450,000 for the product's Indiegogo campaign, which launched in June. Forbes thought it might be the next evolution in wearable technology when they reviewed the idea of the product because they didn't see a product either. Forbes just talked to the people and said this is a great idea. Turns out that the ring apparently doesn't exist. Only about hmm. 200000 of the of the money has been returned to backers and no rings in sight. It all looks dubious in hindsight. Uh, one of the co-founders claimed to have experienced an algorithm. Uh, his experience as an algorithm developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, in at, at a cancer treatment firm, but they can't really confirm that. A separate Indiegogo page created by a scientist and consumer advocates. Uh, it's not selling anything. Flat out calls the bio ring a scam. Right. So now there's wow. a, there's a competing page that you know calling them out. So uh, the, the the other issue of this whole thing, apparently Indiegogo takes a cut of whatever money's contributed, even if whatever you're contributing to doesn't exist. Hmm. I think Indiegogo made about $23,000 off this. Awesome. So, huge scam. Yeah. Some of the money returned, not all of it. Product doesn't exist, and Indiegogo makes money anyway. You know, I wonder, way, so. I wonder if this is the same technology they used for uh, the mood ring. No, it's the same technology they used for snake oil. Yeah. Oh, and I've heard that works. We need to give some of that to Matt. That's kind of the problem is some of these Kickstarter, they call them vaporware. They don't exist. They come up with this this picture and they they they, they put it together. Oh, here's this product; it's going to be awesome. And then they're oh, it just didn't work. And then there's it's kind of weird. On the have to, did they have to refund the money? 
You gave it to us for the research and development that we say we put into this model we made, but hmm. so be careful if you're going to try to fund something or get in on that. Like uh, the Pebble Watch, you heard of that? No, it's one of the first uh, smartwatches that uh, would work with Android or the iPhone, and it was just bought this week by Fitbit. For how much? Do you know? Millions. Oof. But they bought it, and they're going to shut it down. So if you if you hmm. were one of the early investors in Pebble, sorry. Your watch is never going to be updated ever again. Just go invest in fruity pebbles. Yeah. Buy something you have your hands on, maybe. Something <laughs> tangible. I don't know. It seemed kind of interesting. That people got duped on something that doesn't exist. So, uh, Anything else before we head on over to the Dinwoodies? The life expectancy rate just dropped for the first time Uh-oh. for U.S. citizens since 1993. And it, de- it declined last year. They don't know why. There's, I mean, obviously there's no plagues or big diseases or anything out there zombies there's no zombies out there while the decline was only about uh was by only about a month from the average lifespan of 78.9 years in 2014 to 78.8 years in 2015 the washington post notes it's still a troubling development linked to a uh a bunch of worsening health problems across the country the last time life expectancy from birth decreased was in 1993 in the middle of the aids crisis in 2015, there was no disease outbreak in which to pin the uh, the expected decrease. And the death rates spiked for uh, eight of the ten leading causes of death in the U.S. with heart disease as the number one killing more than 600,000 people. So there's no real explanation. We're just not living. There, there, mm. there was just a decrease. So see what happens. I think there's – it sounds like the beginning of a zombie apocalypse. Could Apo- be. Apocalypse. Could I'm just be. saying. You never know. Interesting stuff. Well, speaking of interesting, each Friday we like to uh, turn some time over to the Dinwoodies, an elderly couple couple who are actually quite hip, who give us a breakdown and summary of the news that happened throughout the week. So let's turn it over to the Dinwoodies. Yo, December 2016, yo. President-elect Trump still looking for a Secretary of State. And one option is Petraeus. Harry Potter fans are hoping for a Patronus. Yo, expecto Petraeus. Patronum, yo. Can you believe that Hawaii has experienced snow and ice? Say, what's a snowball's chance in paradise? Hmm. Nordstrom has sold nearly all of their $85 leather-wrapped stones. Yes, they're selling expensive rocks. If you are so desperate to spend money on anything, I have some sticks, grass clippings, and old dirty socks. Yo! (laughs) In California, a man was arrested for stealing a package from a man's front door. They had experienced theft three times before. The thief was seen on a security camera. He likely won't be back for more. The box was filled with doggy poo, a surprise you can't buy from a store. Yo, peace out. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's sick. We wish him well, and we wish him a speedy recovery. Sean mostly does so that he can uh, sleep in on Monday. Anyway, it's Friday, 
Friday means new movies that are out. And as always on Friday, we like to uh, head on over to Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com, who's a film critic specializing in reviewing movies and media from a parent's perspective. Rod, welcome back to the show. Hi, good morning. So, Rod, um, it seems like maybe it's a little bit of a slower weekend for movies. Does that... Uh, well, yeah, maybe a little bit slower, but it's leading up to uh, a really big month. You know, it's kind of strange this year. We have... Um, we have really uh, almost a a big bubble of films, more than usual, that are coming out right around the end of the year as we approach award season. And uh, and this usually always happens, but this year it's happening even more than before. So I guess you could say a little bit the calm before the storm. I mean, we've got you know some big ones that are releasing uh, that that we're not covering. Office Christmas Party. Not going to be family material, but right. I suspect that it may earn quite a bit of money. But the good news is this morning is that we do have one that may not be quite on the tip of everybody's tongue quite yet. But I think that we're going to see some award nominations for this film. And you're talking about the film Lion? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I know. I should, probably shouldn't have made you play Guess What's in My <laughs> Head okay. there. Yeah, yeah. Line is the movie. And this one, um, this is a, a marvelous, wonderful film. We gave it an A grade. Um, and you probably know I do reviews on on the Julie Rose show on Top of Mind as well. Right, and, yeah. And Julie always says, wow, if you give something an A grade. So here you go. This one gets an A grade from Parent Previews. Uh, an amazing movie that's based on a true story. I love true stories. The true stories. This is about a young boy in India who, uh, when he was five years old, he was separated from his family. His older brother goes out looking for work one night and he loves his older brother and begs him to follow him. So his brother says, yeah, okay, reluctantly, uh, you can come with me. So, um, but this this young child, his name is Saru, he gets tired. And so his brother says, okay, he leaves him at a little train station. He says, you sleep here on the bench I'll go look for work and I will come back and get you. Well, the boy falls asleep, wakes up. His brother's nowhere to be found. He uh, searches for shelter and winds up on a railway car. And guess what? He falls asleep again and he wakes up and the car is traveling along through, uh, through who knows where India. He winds up in Calcutta. And of course, at five years old, can barely really even figure out what's happened and uh, he winds up being a street child in Calcutta, a very scary thing. And uh, so the years go by and he ends up um, in an Indian orphanage and winds up being adopted by a couple from Australia in this movie played by Nicole Kidman and David Denham. And he lives a, a lovely life in Australia. This couple is quite well off. He's able to get a university education and every, and, and everything else you could imagine. But... What's weighing on him is he knows his his mother, his single mother, his father has passed away, is probably has spent years wondering where her son is. And that is really weighing on him along with his brother as well, wondering where he is and being responsible for his loss. So he endeavors that he's going to go back to India and find his family. And that's, uh, you know, that's really that outlines basically what the plot is here. A really, really moving movie. And uh, and I was just really impressed with how this film came together. Sounds really emotional and powerful. Wow. It, it, 
Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, some of the things that I really enjoyed about this film is that we all, I think for those of us that may not know much about our families, uh, this is kind of a universal thing. I think most of us want to know where we came from and who our family was and, and being able to find our family and reunite with them and learn more about them and all of those things. And, uh, and I don't want to give away too much of the movie, but it has a very, very poignant conclusion that it just builds up and builds up to. But I think for me, the, one of the big things as you watch this film is just recognizing how, this weighs upon this young man about, you know, wanting to wanting to know more about his mother and the origins of where he came from. So, Rod, anything that uh, that parents ought to be aware of going into this movie? You know, this film is rated PG-13, but it is a it's a very lightweight PG-13. Uh, this is a hard part with movie ratings is um, ratings like the PG-13 rating is very wide. And uh, this one just barely gets in there. In fact, I'm kind of scratching my head a little bit wondering um, why it is. Uh, there is a brief moment of sensuality that really uh, it's a couple in it's a couple in bed and they hug and that's about it. And then they start talking about um, other subjects. Uh, and so that's that's really about it for the sexual content. There's virtually no profanity in this movie. And uh, the violence really is there is a veiled threat that this young boy, when he's young and on the streets of Calcutta, uh, there is an adult who appears to be a caring adult who takes him in. But then we learn that there's something else going on, and I suspect that that it probably was, you know, sexual trafficking and that type of thing. But we never go there. And hmm. to younger children, they wouldn't even guess that's what's happening, but they can just tell that something's wrong, just as this little boy could tell that something's wrong, and he manages to get himself out of that situation. For young children viewing this film, some of these scenes will be scary. I mean, just the idea of being separated from your parents. I remember once many years ago, I loved elevators and I started riding the elevator while my mom was shopping in a department store and getting separated from her. And I remember how scary that was. And in this film, seeing this young boy lost in the streets of Calcutta will be scary to younger children. But parents... Um, you can, at, at the very least, I'll tell you this much, put your arm around them and reassure them it'll be okay, because it does turn out okay, but still very frightening. And uh, I think as well, um, for children who are adopted and who have some of these questions, and even adults for that matter, this could be a very emotional movie. And uh, and so those are just some of the things a heads up on it. But otherwise, you know, pretty much suitable, and it's rare that I say this for a PG-13 movie, but probably I would say eight or ten years of age and over would be okay watching this film. Wow. And, you know, you bring up a good point. That is a real fear with, with youngsters. You mentioned one of, you know, one of your anxieties as a kid. I remember my my worst Recurring dream involved walking home with my mom and the Wicked Witch of the West snatching me <laughs> up who lived in a neighboring house. And my mom just kept walking down the street and left me there. That terrified me. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, separation from... <laughs> 
Well, a separation from parents, too. It's a real yeah. archetype in, in movies as well. Disney's been using it for years when you look at the orphan child formula in many children's movies. And this one, being a true story, it, it has even more of an effect. So now, Lion, does this movie have somewhat of a wide release? Or are we going to have to look a little harder for this one? No, I think, well, that is a really good question, and I'm going to try and find you that answer while I, while I move my way through the your question. But <laughs> I think that this movie actually is going to have a fairly wide release, um, and that's the hard part about movies releasing at this time of year, because in order for them to qualify for awards, they need to get on some screen somewhere. Right. And so anyhow, right now, um, I am showing a release of, yeah, widest release currently of 15 theaters, but I know it is supposed to be releasing a little wider this weekend. And so keep an eye on it. This may be one that's a little bit difficult to find at first. But if you live in a large city, there's probably maybe one theater that has it. And I think it will be releasing wider as things go on. So also, I, I should I should just give you a quick heads up as well. If you can't find something to watch in theaters, we've got some good movies that are releasing on home video this week as well. This is the time of year when many of the family films are releasing for home viewing uh, with the hopes that people are going to buy them for Christmas gifts, right. of course. So that's always an alternative as well. So what are what are some of those? I wasn't sure how much time I had. Okay, oh, you've got you've you. got about a minute and a half. All right. Well, Secret Life of Pets, which it's funny, Secret Life of Pets. This is this animation that came out earlier in July of this year, and people look at it and I think, well, this is a kids movie. It's actually much more of an adult a film that I think will target adults. And when I say it's an adult film, certainly okay for, for most kids to watch, but it's about our love of pets and how adults react and adapt to, to their pets. So that is, you know, quite a cool concept. Pete's dragon also out from Disney. I'm really not a big fan of the original Pete's Dragon, but this new one is quite remarkable. Very well done. And so that one's available from Disney as well. And then a couple of others that I wasn't quite as crazy about, the P, the BFG. This is that Spielberg Disney film that came out um, earlier this year. It's available on home video now. And then a story, an animated little movie from an independent company, is the story of Robinson Crusoe, told through the eyes of a parrot, really wasn't worth the price of admission in a movie theater but if you can get a good deal on the, on the home video that might be good and then for art lovers who really enjoy something different in animation kubo and the two strings a little film from an american animation company a smaller independent company and uh the animation is incredible the story is pretty abstract so i would say even though it's rated pg most little kids probably are going to get a bit bored in this one but very interesting animation and cool story as well well and speaking of awards i think that one will probably be up for some awards right Kubo. Kubo and the two strings, you bet. The animation category this year is going to be Kubo, Zootopia, and uh, probably Finding Dory and Moana. Those are going to be the, the big ones that are going to be playing in that category, I think. Well, Rod, we appreciate you as always. And uh, yeah, go. I hope you watch some holiday movies too. Do you have one that's <laughs> your favorite that you always have to watch? 
Uh, we got a couple of them. Funny you should say that. Last night was the Muppet Christmas Carol night at the Gustafson House, and tonight it's A Wonderful Life. Those are two of our major ones. And then that, that beautiful film put together a few years ago called The Nativity Story, uh, directed by Catherine Hardwick, and uh, some involvement from BYU uh, on that movie. Just love that film. That's another one that we try and fit in each year as well. Well, Hopefully uh, you had a good time watching those, and maybe you can even discover a new holiday favorite this year. Thank yeah, you, Rob. You never know. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It's always a, a pleasure speaking with you. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be doing a little bit of a news flesh to cover some of those stories that we didn't necessarily have a lot of time for, but we still want to squeeze in there. We'll take a quick break, uh, quick break and come back and, and do just that. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is a favorite segment of ours called the News Flesh, where we like to squeeze in a lot of those news stories that we didn't quite have time to uh, really flesh out during the program and accompanied by some very appropriate sound effects. So we'll get to that right now. Terry, what's a news story that needs to be flushed? Federal government spent $200,000 to study how an 800-year-old how 800-year-old fish bones influence Tanzanian social status. Hmm. Story about government waste. It also spent two million on a research effort that revealed, among other things, that children prefer to be rich rather than poor and like to eat food that no one has sneezed on. And four hundred ninety-five thousand went to creating a museum exhibit where visitors were will experience the sights, sounds, and even smells of the Middle Ages, which is surely no uh, one. De- I mean, nobody showered. The food was not refrigerated, so you can imagine what the smells were like. But yes. you can go to this museum. And the government money was used to uh, to pay for it. A uh, senator from Oklahoma went through and found 100 ways the government dropped the ball. Altogether, $247 billion in mismanaged or unnecessary federal spending. And, of course, the national debt since $19 trillion. So he's just looking at why are we doing this? Why are we spending this? And he's not looking at it like, you know, figuring out why bones influence Tanzanian social status might be important to the people of Tanzania. But this is United States dollars. What are we doing with it? Yes. So, well, kind of story about government waste. We know exactly what to do with that. Flushed it. So, uh, really quick, this isn't even, I don't even really need to tell a story about this, but today, actor Kirk Douglas turns 100. Spartacus, or is he really Spartacus? Because there was that argument in the movie where they couldn't decide who was Spartacus. Anyway, 100 years old, father of actor Michael Douglas. He's still hanging in there. Pretty hmm. agile old man. Good for him. Anyway, let's flush that too. It's just flushed the guy's birthday? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's going to get clogged and not go down the drain. So Okay. Something I was just thinking about this week, there's been a quite the surge of movie trailers that have come out. Yes. And I hope I know where you're going with I this. I just rolled back through my, my history on my, my YouTube account because I sit there and look at all this stuff. <laughs> and we the week started out with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Mm-hmm. The song used in that trailer is from a band named Sweet. Yes. And the song is Fox on the Run. Mm-hmm. And that mm. song made 40 years ago hit number one on the iTunes sales charts because of the trailer. Wow. Mm. It was the first time the song actually had any 
traction at all, apparently. Apparently, it was a song lo- hmm. lo- loved by few. Now it's uh, downloaded by many and probably forgotten, essentially. That's awesome. Sits on your phone. Uh, follow that up with The Mummy. It's a Tom new Cruise. version of it Tom with Tom Cruise. Cruise. It kind of looked like a uh, military intrusion mm-hmm. into yes. – they had a sarcophagi and then all of a sudden – the airplane crashes. I don't, I don't think Tom is, a, is is in the military in this one. No, but he was with. It looked like. But it was on a military, military plane. Yeah, yes. so I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> and then then there was a Transformers. The next Transformers yes. trailer came out. That looks like chaos. Um, of course, somebody wanted a Baywatch movie, so there's a trailer for the Baywatch movie. There is that uh, Spider-Man: Homecoming that came out last night. Mm-hmm. Okay, now don't gloss cool. over this. I know you're excited about this I one. Watched it. It's fine. Okay, how many times? A few. <laughs> Doesn't it looks too really, um, It actually looks pretty good. And then I just watched War for the Planet of the Apes, which there came you out this, just this morning. Today, yes. No so, Charlton Heston. No. Mm. That's no. the old one. You don't need. There's that. no dirty apes. So if you need to watch <sighs> some movie trailers, there's a bunch you can go check out. Including Spider-Man: Homecoming. Well, uh, speaking of movies, here's something I want to share with you. The AFI, the American Film Institute, just came out with their AFI Movies of the Year and TV Shows of the Year. Mm. Uh, let's start with the TV shows. I mean, they don't have a, a show for this. What do you mean they don't have a show? They for usually this? Use an award sort of, show. No, oh, there's usually a special where they announce it. Uh-huh. So maybe they're just skipping that. Yeah, so we've got for the TV programs of the year, The Americans, mm. Carrie okay. Russell, mm-hmm. uh, Atlanta, mm-hmm. which is a new comedy on FX, Better Call Saul. Yes! Love okay. it, love it, love it. The Crown. I've heard that's very good. Which is interesting because it barely, barely came out on Netflix. That's true. Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. The Night of, The People versus O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. All right. This Is Us. Oh, yes. This Is Us is a great show. Is it on ABC? It's on NBC. It, NBC. Okay. And then Veep yep. to round that okay. list off. And then for movies of the year, Arrival. You said that was very good, Sean. Mm-hmm. Fences. That has not come out y- quite yet in everywhere. I so think that's, it's just. That, that's not fair. But that is Denzel Washington and Viola Davis. And they they both won Tony Awards for the uh, for the performances on on stage. So you know it's going to be good. And Denzel directs that Ooh. movie. Hacksaw Ridge, Mel Gibson movie. Hell or High Water, La La Land, Manchester by the Sea, Moonlight, Silence, Sully, and Zootopia. Sully, really? Yeah, two Andrew Garfield movies, by the way. Mm-hmm. Hacksaw Ridge and Silence. Anyway, we can go ahead and flesh that. I've only seen maybe like one or two of those movies. I've seen a few more of them. That's, yeah. So a guy in uh, Seattle stole a BMW. And then BMW Corporation helped catch the guy. I heard about this. Yeah. So according to the report, the suspect allegedly decided to take someone else's vehicle for a spin when he, he, what, he stumbled upon a key fob mistakenly left inside the vehicle. When the owner reported the missing car, the police got in touch with BMW, who used their tracking system to locate the vehicle. And uh, when they approached the stolen automobile, officers found the car parked with the suspect left inside sleeping behind the wheel. BMW employees were able to remotely lock the car's doors, trapping the suspect inside, presumably while hissing something terrifying like, and then they went off on something. But uh, so, yeah, they locked the the car remotely with the guy inside and trapped him. And then the cops just took their time. To arrest him and charge Hissing. him. Maybe stuff. he was speaking Slytherin or something. Nah, they're just saying he's 
making some sort of noise. But uh, it's the same as uh, what is it, OnStar? Yeah. Some of these cars where OnStar can just turn off the engine. How humiliating would that be as a criminal to be locked in the car like that that you've yeah. stolen? Well. No, not only that, he had a key fob in there. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to start the car and move it. Yeah. And you can unlock the car with the key fob. Well, that's it. Shh, yeah. don't, don't tell them. Don't <laughs> tell like, them that. He's in the car like, oh, I'm foiled again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Push the button, open the door. <laughs> wow. Well, let's go ahead and flush that one. Do we have time for one more? One more. Appar- okay. Apparently, the lack of sleep is costing the U.S. economy up to $411 billion per year. What? Explain. Just the the fact that if you're not getting six to – well, six is probably the low side. Seven to eight is what everyone keeps saying. I don't know if that's true. But seven to eight hours of sleep, then when you show up to the office, show up to wherever you're working, you're not as efficient. You're not as attentive. You're not doing the highest quality of work possible. And across the entire population, add that number up, $411 billion. Wow. I don't know how you come to that, that mm. number, but – you know. Estimations, but it says it loses over a million working days a year due to sleep deprivation among its working population because it affects your health, which is probably why Matt is sick. The man doesn't sleep. Yeah. Wow. Poor Matt. We'll forgive him. He needs to get more sleep. As I've said all week, he's not here and he's sick because of poor life choices. He needs to stop watching Arrow. No, keep watching Arrow. It's a great oh, show. But just don't binge watch it. Maybe. You can binge watch it. You, you, the problem is they also have tie-in episodes with The Flash, so you have to jump out and jump back in, and it makes it difficult to watch them. You so have you, to watch them both at the same time. Oh, my goodness. And now they've added Supergirl and what is the other one? Um, League, League of Legends or Legends of Tomorrow is what it's called. And So there's crossovers with all those, too, so you have to watch them all simultaneously. It's really a difficult watch. So I don't re- foiled by Hollywood. I recommend it, oh. but you have to be committed. Mm. Well, I don't think I'm ready to make that commitment. I don't think I'm ready to take that relationship with those shows to the next level. Anyway, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking, hopefully, with Spencer and Jerem of BYU Sports Nation. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Right now, we're going to do something that's one of my favorite parts of the Matt Townsend Show, and that's speak to Spencer and Jerem over at BYU Sports Nation, who are just about ready to start their own show at 10 o'clock. Spencer and Jerem, thanks for coming back to speak with us today. Jeff Simpson, you have failed this city. Whoa, that was pretty intense. You are talking uh, about the arrow. Oh, my goodness. You know, I've actually never seen it. Oh, come on. Is that a crime? That was Terry talking about the Arrow, right? Yeah, yeah that was Terry. Terry! Yeah, I, there are very few shows that I watch. I'm watching Third Rock from the Sun right now with the incomparable John Lithgow. If you're in the 90s, you've got a lot of TV to watch. Not right to now. mention a very young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That He's is been in true. a lot of things. That was uh, before his voice got a little deeper. Mm-hmm. It happens. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um... Are either of you going to be celebrating Pastry Day today? Every day. Is Isn't Every day. day Pastry Day? That's a good point. Every, every day. Favorite pastry? Oh, good old-fashioned classic glazed donut for me. Mm. Or a ma- maybe a maple bar right there. A cougar tail at BYU. That's you know, I keep saying they could make so much more money if they would make a cougar tail with bacon on it. This isn't Voodoo Donuts in Portland. 
You know, <laughs> by the way, overrated donuts. Really? Stood in line for an hour, and it was just regular well, donuts with yeah. some fancy toppings sprinkled it's on not top. Worth an hour. No. No. Anyway. It's like most things in life. Overrated. Oh, have either of you tried a cronut? I think I have. I'm trying to decipher what a cronut is. Hybrid between a donut and a croissant. Ooh. A crumbly donut. That sounds delicious, actually. It's amazing. So go go to Center Street. There's that French bakery that sells them. They're not cheap. They're about five bucks, but oh my goodness, is it a slice of heaven. Mm. Mm. Sounds amazing. Why are you telling us this when we have to sit here for an hour? Because I'm almost done with the show, and I'm hungry, and I'm going out. (laughs) It isn't about us, Jerem, clearly. It's about Jeff. All right. Someone tweeted that at us the other day. They're like, you know it's not about you, right? And I was like, where did this guy come from? (laughs) He does not understand the premise of our program. Okay. Let's let's take some time to make you feel better about yourselves, and uh, let's let's hear what you've got coming up on your program. Mm, Let's see, Jerem. Or we can keep talking about cronuts. Uh, we've got a fun premise today. So, oh, that we do. BYU basketball six and three. So we asked the question on Twitter. It's our Twitter question today. You can use the hashtag BYUSN win. What TV show or movie? Speaking of, is the BYU basketball season so far? So we will give you our our answers. There's some funny answers. Someone said hmm. it's like Lost. At first, we were all super excited to get going with this. Now we don't know where it's going or how it's going to end. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Terry right. Nashif. The assistant men's basketball coach will uh, join us as well to preview a big game for the Cougars. Colorado's in town tomorrow night. Uh, they're a top 50 team. That could be a big win for BYU's March Madness resume. Now, are you predicting that they're going to win? No. Oh. I think BYU will compete. But, you know, you would be the first to admit that, that you guys are often way off on your predictions, so maybe they're going to win. Hey, Jeff, I think we need to end this conversation right now. <laughs> My name is Jeff. <laughs> yes, we, we sometimes get things wrong, but we're trying really hard not to get them wrong. We can't scream from the rooftops when we're way on. I'm sorry. We were Wait. supposed to be focusing on you and making you feel better about yourself. We feel Well, the show's about, about us, ourselves. right? So... <laughs> Oh, and it's oh, it's called BYU Sports Nation. My bad. Oh, oh not my bad. Jeremy and Spencer Nation. Oh, okay. my bad. All right. My bad. Anything else that uh, we should be looking forward to? Sweet it's, sixteen day. Yeah, it's NCAA tournament game day for BYU women's volleyball. They get Texas now. Two years ago, BYU beat Texas in the Final Four to make their first ever national championship appearance. This year, it's in the Sweet Sixteen in Austin, and all BYU does is beat Texas. So, what's weird is they're. BYU is the heavy underdog, but I'm like, no, nah, we'll, we'll beat Texas. Because uh, recently, BYU just beats Texas. The libero, Mary Lake, will join us live from Austin. Ooh. Yeah. 71% of the earth is covered by the ocean. The other 29% is covered by Mary Lake. Ah, yes. <laughs> Fun fact. Yes, yes. Hey, so uh, with the bowl game coming up this month, in a couple of weeks, really, uh, I know we don't like to talk about predictions. It's kind of a sore subject. But who is going to win that game? Brigham Young. Yeah, BYU is going to beat Wyoming. Excellent. Wyoming. Because that's what we do. Yeah! I heard that uh, it's been several years since BYU has won a bowl game, but the last time they did, it was at the Poinsettia Bowl. Yes, in San Diego against Fact. the Mountain West Conference opponent. Bears beats Battlestar Galactic. A Mountain West Conference opponent that wanted nothing to do with playing BYU. And looky here, another team that doesn't want to schedule BYU, so... 
we'll take it out of their hands and just force them to play us in a bowl game. Black bears are the most dangerous bears mm-hmm. on the planet. Yes. Fact. Fact. All right, gentlemen, we got to let you go. Uh, knock them dead and have a great show and have a great weekend, too. And go enjoy a cougar tail with some bacon on it. Okay. Okay. Catch you, you later. Thank you, guys. Thanks for making us hungry. <laughs> Thanks for that. Oh, good stuff. Fun. Fun stuff. Oh, croissants. Sorry, I don't mean to take you on these little uh, hunger journeys with you or with me, but, uh, you know, when you get here so early and you talk about food throughout the show, it's it's difficult to not get hungry. And if you've tasted a croissant, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, you're probably salivating right about now. Unless you're Sean O'Neill. I think he could pass. Anyway, uh, one other story that I wanted to share with you. Uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, those Canadian police officers who threatened drunk drivers with having to listen to Nickelback songs. Well, they've made the news again because they are now officially apologizing for, for that stance, or even if it was fake so the message that they had sent went viral and a spokesperson for the for the band reportedly requested it be taken down. The humorous attempt to bring awareness to the dangers of drinking and driving by Prince Edward Island's Kensington Police Service last week instead snowballed into one big nickelback joke. Well, as we have seen, our little post became an international story, the apology reads. And somewhere in the noise, the message of don't drink and drive was overshadowed by negative or negativity towards the band. I said I would play if you did. So they're feeling really bad about it. I am so sorry to Chad, Ryan, Mike, and Daniel, the note says. Not as just members of Nickelback, but more importantly, as fellow Canadians. I'm sorry, guys, because it didn't take a moment. I didn't take a moment to think of you as just guys. So you can look it up, you can read the the entire apology and and maybe even the note that they had sent originally uh, describing how they would deal with drunk drivers and make them listen to Nickelback songs. Interesting stuff. As you know, we like to end the show each day with our hero story of the day, and today is no different. It's another good hero story. A crew of firefighters in Washington state helped save Christmas for the family of a man who fell nearly six feet off a ladder while trying to hang Christmas lights at his home. Eric Gaines, 35, was home alone with his three young children Sunday decorating the outside of the family's Puyallup, Washington home for the holidays. He had just hung the first string of lights of his two-story home when the base of the ladder kicked out from underneath him and he crashed down. Gaines' left leg got caught in one of the rungs of the ladder as he crushed, crashed onto the ground. His 11- and 7-year-old daughters called 911 for their dad while Gaines' 1-year-old son slept in his crib. Just as Gaines' wife pulled up to the house, rescue crews from Central Pierce Fire and Rescue arrived to take Gaines to the hospital. As Gaines was treated at the hospital for injuries, including a torn rotator cuff, broken leg, and a chipped bone on his shoulder, he received good news. The same firefighters who rescued him were planning to come back to his house on their day off to finish hanging his Christmas lights. They were so upset, so we thought, let's just give back and spread a little joy. Sean Irwin, one of the four firefighters who put up the lights on Tuesday, told ABC News. We thought it'd be cool if they pulled in home from the hospital and they had their lights up. Irwin said the firefighters had a relatively easy job to do because Gaines had so carefully laid out the lights for his home. 
they completed they completed the job in about one hour. Putting up lights was pushed uh, to the back burner after my fall, Gaines said. But when I heard they offered, it definitely got me emotional to know that they had thought to do that. The firefighters also told Gaines they will be back in January to finish the job. They called when he got home from when we got home from the hospital and made sure the timers were all working for the lights to go on and off and offered to come back after the first of the year to take the lights down, Gaines said. Well, there you have it, folks. You can be a hero even in this small way. As somebody gets injured, you can maybe help out with their Christmas lights. Maybe help them go Christmas shopping. Ease some of that holiday stress and frustration that some people might feel. But the main the main thing was they were there when he needed his when they needed help and uh they were able to be heroes in a small way but still a, a very important way and we uh hope that Gaines will get to feeling better very soon that's it for the Matt Townsend show we'll be back monday and hopefully with Dr. Matt <laughs>